Welcome to the Gill Athletics Connections Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill Athletics. Our goal today is to connect you with coaches from around the world to learn their journey, share their stories, and just figure out who they are and what they're all about. So without further ado, let's get on and find out what today's guest has in store for us. And thanks for joining us again for the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. Uh, just so, so excited about today's episode. So glad that you would join us today. Uh, as uh, you've maybe heard some of our other podcasts in the past, we've had some amazing, just awesome, awesome guests. I'm so, so proud to be able to bring uh, these great guys and gals to you. And today is no different. I've got a longtime friend. Uh, we have known each other for a long time. We've uh, been through the muck together. Please help me uh, welcome Mr. Ron Grigg, head coach of Jacksonville University. Ron, how are you, sir? I'm great, Mike, and it's really an honor to be here. Um, yeah, we go way back, so we'll try to try to dismiss a lot of the formalities, but uh, I really do appreciate you asking, and uh, and it is an honor to be here. Well, thanks, man. Uh, I think you know we will get into some of our history because I think some of the stuff that I call it the uh, the four amigos. There was kind of four young coaches all together, you and I being half of that squad. Uh, you were at Jacksonville University when I met you, and uh, I was at Troy University. And then uh, another guy who is, you know, very much like my brother. It's actually kind of embarrassing. Maybe I haven't had him on the show yet because uh, we are so close, but Chris Baptista, who's now at uh, Cal Poly Slow. And then, you know, I guess the guy who's just, uh, at least for me, he has gone so farther than I would have ever thought could have happened to any of us uh, buckaroos, but uh, Todd Lane now at LSU, he was at, I always get it mixed up. He was at Southern or state, Georgia Southern or state? Georgia Southern. Georgia Southern, right. Uh, and so the four of us were kind of just our first coaching jobs around, you know, start of our career. It's crazy to think that that was 20 plus years ago. Um, and life was different. You know, we were at the Georgia Southerns and Jacksonville's and Troy's. So uh, uh, we, we had to do it down and dirty, man. We had to drive in the car for 12 hours to go to a track meet and drive right back home and things like that. So we'll get into those. That'll be a, a lot of fun. Uh, but first, you know, honestly, I want to learn uh, more about you. I'm always blown away by these type of interviews here where I get to sit down with a friend, I, you know, a genuine guy that I've known for a long time and have a lot of respect, not only in the professional world, but as friends. But I always learn something new, even about guys that I've known for a long time. So I'm always excited about that aspect. Why don't we start before we get in our Wayback Machine and figure out how track started for you. Tell us a little bit about Jacksonville University, where you are now. Uh, I know it's beautiful and you're on the beach and all that kind of good stuff, but tell us how's thing, how things are going there in Jacksonville. Sure. I mean, Jacksonville University is a Division I private university in Northeast Florida, about 2,800 traditional undergrads. Um, so really small for, for a Division I school. I, 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 if I'm giving my recruiting pitch, it's the best of all worlds. We have small private school education. The ability to run the highest level of Division One track and field, and you get to do it within 15 miles of the beach. Uh, not a bad place to, to be, and uh, and you know I'm sure we'll talk about it. But you know I've been here for a long time for for much of those very very same reasons. Uh, it is beautiful. The campus is beautiful. Uh, 15 minutes away. That that might be if it's during traffic. It's super close to the beach. <laughs> uh, I know there's lots of reasons why you have been in Jacksonville for a long time, <laughs> but. If you're listening, you, you you may not be thinking that's a Florida accent. You know, as a guy, I, I was born in Florida, so I've got the traditional, you know, there is no accent, Florida accent. <laughs> uh, you've got a little bit of a New England, Northeast type accent. Where does that come from? 
Yeah, it's it's still it still rears its head, uh, especially if I have a beer or two. It, it's it's a little bit stronger. Um, but no, I grew up in Sharon, Massachusetts, uh, which is basically halfway between Boston and Providence on I ninety five. It's you know thirty five minutes in either direction to either of those two cities. Hmm. Um, went to Sharon High School, and then uh, upon graduation, went to uh, the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, which was actually Southeastern Massachusetts University when I first started. They changed their name. Um, halfway through my career. Uh, and so I spent really the, the vast majority of my, of my uh, growing up was all in Massachusetts. I mean, I'd never been on a plane until after I graduated. Um, and then I was recruited by, uh, by a program called Teach for America, which is, which is big around, around the country now, but it, it was in its third year of existence. Uh, it's kind of a, a Peace Corps type um, of a program where you committed two years to teaching in an urban or rural under-resourced environment. And uh, at the beginning of their, at the beginning of their tenure, their mission was to recruit non-education majors. So they didn't want traditional teachers going into the classroom. They wanted to kind of have an outside perspective. Um, and uh, I was really fortunate to be recruited by Teach for America. And so my first plane flight was actually from Boston to Los Angeles, oh. where I did, did a, a summer of, of a, it's called the Institute. Um, where it's just intensive teacher training, where you are, uh, you know, for the first couple of weeks, we're on UCLA's campus, and uh, which was for a track and field guy, uh, it was heaven. Any time I could, I would sneak down to the track because that's back when Quincy Watts was there, and, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, Bobby Kersey was coaching his entire group, and you know, all the people that I admired were out there working out whenever I could sneak away was uh was HSI out there so uh Marie they they had really just kind of begun yeah um, okay. you know we're talking about 1990 the summer of 1993 oh, okay yeah mm -hmm. summer of 93 fall fall of 93 well let's put, um, put a pin in that I do want to learn more about see I didn't know teach for America there, there's my first thing uh let's <coughs> go back though you talk about you're a track guy so tell us when did track become your sport when did you start doing track was it a middle school thing high school yeah, um, my dad was a was a runner. He was the president of the Sharon Roadrunners Club. Um, I spent my, you know, when I was six, seven, and eight years old, I, I knew my way around uh, every road race in the area. Huh. Um, and I, I, you know, I kind of chuckle when I when I talk to people about it because you know, my dad would my we had a really big Fourth of July race in my t my hometown that my dad put on. Really proud of it. Um, and great runners came to, to compete there. Uh, but back then, obviously we're talking about the, the mid seventies. Um, the way you publicize your race was you went to other road races and you mm. put leaflets on cars. Right. So as a seven-year-old, I would be in the parking lot. My dad would run the race, the race would be out running and I would be as a seven-year-old walking through the parking lot, putting, <laughs> putting leaflets in the windshields. Um, did you have any funny stories from clues. that? Say that again. Any, any funny stories from that? That feels like for a seven-year-old, that's a little. Well, I, I've got a table. I mean, it's, it's, I, it's I only funny now in retrospect. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, because the timing crew, all the all the finish line people, Bob Spitler Racing, who who uh, I've had a chance to reconnect with, um, they did most of the races, and so I knew all all the guys that ran the the finish line. They were probably babysitting for me without really knowing it. Right. Um, <laughs> Probably keeping my father from getting from you know, I mean, taken to the, to the Department of that, Children's Services or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, you know, I was always around running, mm -hmm. but I was a football guy. Um, loved playing Pop Warner football. 
the problem was I was really small. Um, when I started, I remember my dad was my first coach in everything, in, in football and in basketball and baseball and, and obviously in running. Uh, and I was so small when I was eight years old that we had to put, he, he cut holes inside the belt loop of my jeans. And then he made at work, he made some, some lead weights that would wrap around my waist. And he, we slid them into the jeans because you had to weigh 55 pounds to play football. And I did not weigh 55 pounds at eight years of age. Rah, no way. So that's how I made the weight limit to be able to play. So I was the youngest and smallest kid in the team. And then four years later, I was the oldest kid in the team. So we got to the point where I was too old to play with the kids my size. And I was too small to play with the kids my age. And football kind of was no longer a thing. And uh, I started kind of being a distance runner. I was, uh, I started running in these road races and right. was not bad for a middle school kid. I mean, I remember breaking, I remember breaking five minutes in the mile in, in middle school. Yeah. Um, and without weights in your, your uh, yeah, without, waist. Yeah, without weights in my pocket. Um, <laughs> But that was all pre-puberty and, and that kind of changed everything for me. But so that, that's where track became a thing. In high yeah. school, uh, I had four different coaches in my four, four years. Hmm. And I wasn't very good as a distance runner any longer. I was really tired of going out and running five or six miles every day and coming yeah. back and seeing all the cool kids hanging out on the high jump pits. So the first day of practice in my senior year, the new coach who didn't know anybody said, who runs the hurdles? And I raised my hand. I've never heard it in my life. Interesting, And so, and I couldn't do the, I, I was too small still. I mean, even as a senior in high school, when I graduated from high school, I graduated uh, at five foot eight, 112 pounds. Um, wow. I was, I was little, but the, but the intermediate hurdles, the 300 meter hurdles I could do. And so I, I took a hurdle from the track to my grandfather's house and put it in his backyard and kind of taught myself how to hurdle and, you know, won some races in, in my, in my league. Wait, so and I became a, a 400 meter runner and a 300 meter hurdler in, in my senior year. What were you thinking? And, and what I mean by that is, so the coach was new. I get that. Lo love that aspect of, Hey, he don't, he don't know anything, <laughs> but your teammates, I mean, they had to all just kind of like peer at you and like, wait, what's he, what's, uh, what's Ron doing, man? He ain't no hurdler. Uh, I was no good as a distance runner anymore. There's a whole injury history that went, went along. I mean, I was terrible. Yeah. Um, Shoot, I wasn't all that great as a 400 meter runner, but in a small town, I, my, my high school personal best was like 57.3. Like I don't, you can't even walk on as a woman at Jacksonville University with the times I ran as a senior in high school. Right. But I still loved the sport and thought I was good because I was finishing first or second. And, you know, nobody told me I wasn't. And yeah. that's how I stayed in the sport. I mean, I, I, I knocked on the door of coach John Hurd at, at, at SMU. <laughs> and said, I want to run track. And he said, fill out the paperwork and show up. And, and he gave me a shot. So I, I think that's really important what you said there about, you know, where you were at that time and you felt like you were good and, and you were good. You were having success based on where you are. We can't, we don't pick always, especially as kids, we don't get to pick where we are and how good our conference or our state, depending on where we live in is. So you can only compete against what's in front of you. And so you went out there and competed and you were first and second in the conference. That's awesome. I, I don't think that's, too, I think too many times and it's real easy in track, right? To go, oh yeah, but look what they're doing in Texas or look what they're doing in here or this kid. You're, you're not even the top 100 list and kind of put your achievements down. Well, you could only, you can only control what you can control and you controlled 
what was in front of you or in behind you uh, at conference. I love that. That's, that's a, that, there's a lesson there about a lot of things that we do professionally and athletically. It's the great part about our sport is while, while we try to make it as much of a team aspect as we can, there's a, there's a pond, the right size pond for everybody, right? I mean, there's yeah. a reason why there are still 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds running road races, right? I mean, I ran 20 flat for 5k last year. That's kind of a, so I want to break 20 minutes for 5k, right? Mm -hmm. There's still the competitive individual competitive nature. And that's my pond right now. Um, I've been in bigger ponds. I've been in smaller ponds and, and the same thing in track and field, uh, you know, you can always move to a, to a bigger pond as you get better. Um, but playing time doesn't tend to be an issue, right? Like mm -hmm. if you make the right. team, you, there's pretty much going to be a heat for you. And that's the great part about our sport, where if you're the eighth guy in the basketball team, you may never see the floor. Right. Um, if you're the eighth 400 meter runner in your high school team, you get to race in every single dual meet. Uh, so wonder, that, is, that is a wonderful part about our sport. I wonder, you know, Tom Brady is, his story is awesome, right? Because I think he was the backup quarterback at Michigan, and then he got drafted the sixth round or something like that. And so that's heralded as this, like, you know, anybody can make it. However, I wonder how many awesome quarterbacks or point guards uh, using that basketball analogy who, you know, didn't get to see the court. And so they never got to try out for the next round and they may have been the best, you know, they may have been an NBA kid or an NFL kid, but because of the way uh, football and basketball is, they never got to show themselves, not their shot, but they got to never got to show themselves. We're in track. I love how you said that there's a, there's a, there's a right size pond for all of us. I like yeah, that. And you know, if, if you love the sport, if you're passionate about the sport and our sport, you can always stay in it. You can always find a way to, uh, and, you know, again, I didn't know that I wasn't very good and I loved it. I mean, I was getting runner's world magazine sent to the house and, and, and I was getting track and field news sent to the house. And, and, you know, I had cut out pictures of, of Carl Lewis and Leroy Burrell and, you know, to now like be at track meets and, you know, having dinner with, with, with coach Burrell and, yeah. you know, he knows me by first name. Uh, wow. You know, that, that kind of thing, but um, that is cool. But if you're passionate about it in our sport, you can, you can learn and you can develop and you can find a way both as an athlete and as a coach. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you went to SMU and went to coach and said, Hey, I'd like to try out. So you had you fill all the paperwork. So you didn't pick the school because of track you picked the school because of school or how I picked how I picked my school is a, is an interesting story. Um, again, I'm a, I was a track guy, right? So I, I wanted to go to the University of Pittsburgh mm -hmm. because I thought of myself as a hurdler, and the University of Pittsburgh had great hurdlers at the time, and it was in track and field news. And so I applied to the University of Pittsburgh and got accepted. And then then the information, you know, the, the financial aid packets come to the house, and my father says do we buy a new car every year? I said, no, <laughs> there's no way that I can pay this for you to go to school every year. Like we just can't do it. Right. That was the reality of it. Um, the other school that I applied to because they, because they sent me something in the mail that was, that was beautiful was Mary Washington college, yeah. a little tiny school in Virginia. All right. Um, and uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll be on this call a lot if you keep me rambling, but Stan Soper, I remember the coach because I kept trying to call to say I've been accepted to this. Oh no, I had, I didn't get accepted to the school. I wanted to be accepted to the school. I wanted to contact the coach and it was like 57 seconds for a guy. I know now what, what happens when I get these 
emails, right? right? Uh, so there was really, he, he really didn't have any interest in helping me out. Um, and I did not get accepted to Mary, to Mary Washington. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I wish that I had, it was a beautiful school and it was, it was, it was, and it was a really inexpensive school for mm -hmm. out of state students. Mm -hmm. So I thought it might've been able to work out, um, but I just didn't get, didn't get, uh, didn't get accepted. And so we were like the, the last couple of weeks of school. Oh, still and decided. I worked of high school and I worked for our town, the town of Sharon. And uh, I was a gate guard. It means I sat at the front gate of our lake and you had to come in. And I had to make sure that you were a town resident or that you had these specific tags. In the booth? And, uh, it was a really coveted job, right? I mean, everybody wanted, wanted this job. And then uh, one of the lifeguards was one of my high school best friends, still best friends to this day, um, Randy Guy. And I literally said, where are you going to school? He said, I'm going to SMU. Where's that? It's like two hours down the road. Is it easy to get into? <laughs> here's, here's my requirements. Easy to get into and does not afford a new car every year. <laughs> one, our, one of our Pop Warner football coaches was our high school guidance counselor, Mr. Peckham. Went into Mr. Peckham's office and asked for a sealed transcript. And Randy drove me to SMU. Wow. And I walked into the admission office with a sealed transcript with his signature on it. And I filled out an application and handed them transcripts and then went home and waited to hear. And I got accepted to SMU. And then the question was, was I going to be able to live in a dorm? Because it was so late in the process. Oh, right. And that is literally how I chose my college. It was, a, it was the state school that was just about the closest to my house. Um, and our family could afford it. Now, I'm for, I was the first person in anywhere in my family tree to ever go to college. So uh, my parents are amazing. But, but college search process was not something that they were mm -hmm. well versed in. Um, so this is just how it ended up working out for me, uh, and that's how that's how I chose SMU. What a what a good friend! Like I mean, literally put you in the cars. Like let's go. Well, let's that's what we gotta do. Let's let's get you there and see if they'll accept you. I love that. He became he was my he was my second semester freshman roommate. Awesome. And then he became a really big man on campus, living off campus, and so I lived on campus the rest of the time. But uh, I'm trying to think. Randy was probably just here three months ago. Um, he he. <laughs> He was a computer science major. And I was always joking, oh, computer, that's a fad. I remember him taking me up to a lab to show me the internet. He's like, let me show you what this internet is, right? We're talking again, we're talking 1992. Right. And you can imagine what was on every computer in the room, like when the internet first got started. The same thing that's the internet's po popular for now is the same thing that the internet was popular for at the beginning. Yeah. He blew my mind, like, you can put this on a computer in, in a school? Uh, so he showed me the internet. Um, and he started working, he was coding and doing these things way before anybody knew what it was, yeah. uh, worked for a really tiny company that continued to get bought out and bought out and bought out. And now he's like this, I mean, he's a world traveling vice president for a major, major wow. company, um, that has a headquarters here in town. And so whenever he flies in, we're, we're sure to, to go out and get dinner. Um, and this is a kid who I played tackle football in the cemetery at my grandfather's house he was like a neighbor to my grandfather and Man. to this day i mean you know uh what a great his wedding and, and friendship uh, yeah that's awesome. yes so he was a really good friend and i and i wouldn't be i wouldn't be where i am if, if he didn't put me in this car and, and and take me to the school to apply that's so cool shout out to him man that's really cool yeah. what, you mentioned you had never heard of 
SMU, which becomes UMass Dartmouth, it, but it was only about two hours away. And again, this is pre-internet. So, I mean, mm -hmm. investigation of what schools to apply to is a lot easier now than it was then, but I'm surprised two hours away, you hadn't even heard of it. You know, it, if you asked me where I was going to go to school when I was, a, when I was a young football playing elementary schooler at Thanksgiving, my parents would always, you know, my family would always ask, where are you going to school? I'm either going to Notre Dame, Boston College, or Harvard. Right? right. I mean, I was the good Catholic, the good uh, Irish Catholic from from Massachusetts. Right. I was going to follow, you know, be a Kennedy, and either go to Harvard or I was going to go to Notre Dame or Boston College. They were the they were the they were the schools that you knew of. Um, I, I just didn't have, I wasn't well versed in any of that. Uh, right. That's funny. That's interesting. So you go, uh, coach lets you on the team. You fill out the paperwork, and John Hurd says you want to be on the team. Come on the team, and. Hey. I was terrible. And where was your mindset as far as a career, though, at this point? Uh, what were you going to study? What were you thinking there? Yeah, I, political science was my major. Hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to be, I wanted to get into politics one way. I wanted, I wanted to be able to uh, be influential and help people. And I thought, I thought doing it through policy is, would be a noble way. Okay, because yeah, I didn't know if I was say... a lawyer or... That's kind of thing, but I was going to say as a compliment, I think of you as one of the least political people that I know. And I mean that as a compliment, but then when you say it, I wanted to influence and help people. Oh, okay. Well, that, that, that is who I think of you as. So that makes sense. Well, the reason that politics didn't work out for me is in, in my, in my fifth year of school, because it took me a little bit longer. <laughs> um, I was able to do an internship in Washington, DC. And so I spent my fifth, my, my fifth year fall in DC in an internship program called the, the Washington center for, for internships, okay. um, and I was working for Amtrak's government and public affairs, so I got to be in Union Station upstairs in the Amtrak offices, working with both the the public affairs side, putting on events, but the the government affairs side as well. Like I was actually in the Capitol, sitting in on any meetings that had to do with transportation policy. I would go and take notes and be able to come back and report to the people at Amtrak. And, and uh, that sounds terribly boring. It was uh, it was it was during the first election cycle for Bill Clinton. Okay. Um, and being in D.C. and actually being involved in politics and seeing all the all the things that are, are now stereotypical and, and and unappealing about politics, it really did turn me off. That that uh, that perhaps I needed to have a little bit more of a silver spoon if I were ever going to be accepted. Um, the fact that that I believed in being able to help lots of people. Uh, and the kind of people who were my closest friends in high school and college, uh, you know, I didn't see a lot of people that looked like that in politics. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And they always said, that's why you have to go into politics, because you can advocate for us. Uh, and they will never suspect it. Right? You, you'll just look like you'll look like the, the, the Irish Catholic from Massachusetts that, that always gets into politics. But, um, I was really fortunate when I was in D.C. to to take a course and have a have a, a professor and it was a it was tied in with the internship, right? You you had to also take an academic seminar while you were there, hmm. um, and I and I was given a book called Savage Inequalities, which is about the disparity in education funding because of property tax. Mm. So if you live in a poor neighborhood and the buildings aren't worth very much, you don't make a lot in property taxes, and and so the resources reinvested in education are smaller. Where if you live in these wealthy towns that could be right next door. Your schools are palatial with the best teachers, and uh, you know it creates a cycle. And uh, 
the book really opened my eyes. It, it, it allowed me to say, you know, see injustice yeah. and it lit a fire and, and I did a report on it. And, and this is the woman who said, you should apply for Teach for America. And huh. again, I, I was a 3.2 student. I wasn't an Ivy League school. Most of the early Teach for America recipients, those who were accepted the program were all from these elite private schools, um, including the Ivy Leagues. I mean, I did my interview at Harvard and uh, I, I don't know how it is I made it through the, through the process and, and got accepted, but it, it changed everything for me uh, getting into teaching. And, and that's what I did. I, I taught second grade in inner city Baltimore for my first three years out of college, which is how I eventually got into coaching. So uh, go back to that. You were talking about, tell me the name of that book again, Social Injustice. Savage Inequalities. Savage Inequalities. Uh, what you're describing, there, I think, is is that the, where they talk about redlining or red term? Uh, um, I don't know the term that, that, yeah. you're, that you're, uh, but now if you're talking about re, like political redistricting now. Not, not the gerrymandering, not yeah, gerrymandering, not that mm -hmm. part, but there was a, um, uh, it, it probably is still on Netflix, a, a cool documentary uh, by the guys who did Freakonomics. And they did a study on that. And I thought it was about how exactly what you're talking about, where the lines are for the taxes that go for the mm -hmm. education. And I thought it was redlining, I think was the term, because they literally use a red line, you know, to, to box these in. And yeah, you have this, you know, you have a little pool of money because the property values are low. And so that goes to that school. And then you have, and then that also goes into the whole private school, public school debate or whatnot, as, as far as um, high primary education. Uh, it's, it's a real problem. It's a generational well, it, problem. You know, it, it's things just become a perpetual cycle mm -hmm. that that uh, that never really corrects itself, um, and it becomes hard. You you have to be the exception as opposed to the rule right. to find your way to success because the resources just aren't there. Yeah, um, that, it's not it's not good. It's uh, and it holds back. I think you're exactly right there. You have to be the exception. Uh, you don't get to become the norm because uh, the norm is lower education, lower money spent on education, et cetera. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real problem. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I love those type of subjects on what, what, what we could and should be doing with politics and policy and things like that. So uh, how was athletics going through UMass Dartmouth? Were you getting better? Did you? Yeah, well, uh, again, I was a really, really late developer, like, uh, you know, puberty kind of happened after my senior year of high school. Okay. Um, so I, I still, I, I ran, I remember my first indoor track meet. Because um, here I am with a 57 second personal best. And all the older guys of the team are kidding me because there was a girl at Brown University. Her last name was Smith, Terry Smith. Terry Smith, the year before, was an NCAA Division I All-American. And she had run like 54 point for 400 meters, you know, and they're all like, Hey man, that girl ran 54 seconds. So, I mean, I, I remember I, I ran like 56 point in my first indoor track meet scared to death. I just wanted to run faster than, 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 and on that day I did, uh, that day, but again, you know, 56 <laughs> seconds for a guy 400 meter runner is not all that good. I, I still wasn't very good, but again, it was division three and there was a lane for me and I loved the sport. I didn't know any better. Uh, I mean, I used to go, I went to cross country practices every day. Um, my fondest memories of college track besides my teammates and, and the van rides to practices because mm -hmm. we practice at Brown university it was about a 45 minute ride. Oh. So twice a week, we would get to go use the indoor track um, besides the van rides and not just the van rides with the team, but the van rides with coach Hurd. Uh, after about a year or two, I, I sat in the front, you know, 
I had shotgun talking with coach Hurd back and forth. Um, and I used to, I used to go to the office an hour before track practice uh, just to hang out. He, he was the equipment manager. So I hung, hung out in the cage, just talking. Yeah. Just, well, I was going to say, know. what were those conversations about? Were they about training? Were they just about life? About everything. Uh, I learned a lot about track and field. Um, but that's when, you know, when I think back to, to my university, I remember my political science studies. Uh, I remember not liking any of the courses that weren't political science. Hmm. And I remember all I wanted to do was go to practice. Right. So like, as soon as lunch was over and I had my classes done, it would be well before practice time, but I would have all my stuff ready and I'd head off to the gym and then kind of just go, I'd, I'd watch whoever was playing basketball, do whatever, and then find Coach Hurd and just go hang out. Um, so yeah, like, uh, Coach Hurd gave me my opportunity and, and uh, you know, he was a distance guy, but I just kept, you know, like I say with coaching men, as long as they keep getting a year older, they tend to get better as long as you don't mess it up. And I just kept getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better until I was now scoring at New England Division Threes and making the you know, in New England, there's a, a gazillion levels of championships. So yeah, I, I still they have the, understand it. the all New England championships have qualifying times and it doesn't matter what division you run for. So we have a, we had a division three New England championship, but there was also the all New England championship. And that was a really big deal to be able to qualify for the all New England championships and run against UConn and URI and UMass and Boston college and Holy cross and all these guys. And, uh, and to be able to make, make those, those, uh, those meets, um, and so we, we, I got better and, and ended up being a pretty good 400 meter hurdler and, and ran all right for 400 meters uh, indoors and outdoors and, you know, n- never enough to make it to the division three championships. Um, again, a lot of fate goes on in my story. Uh, what was going to be my senior, my, well, my fourth year, right? Like my parents, again, my parents didn't know a ton about college. So they didn't know that I was maybe withdrawing from a class every semester or so. <laughs> and so it was going to take me a little bit longer. And I hadn't told them. I mean, I was trying to figure out if I was going to have to go pay for summer school after, after my fourth year to graduate or, or what would happen. Um, there used to be, the Boston College would have relays. Back in the day, Boston College actually had a track <laughs> just before Flutie. And when Flutie got there, they tore out the track to put in more, more football seats. No. But like the last Boston College relays had the 10,000 on a Thursday night. And Coach Hurd took the distance runners off to, to that meet. And so all of us sprinters, we went in the gym and played basketball. And two days before the first meet of the season, I uh, tried to dunk, which I could, uh. I could do off of an alley-oop at that point in time. Um, but I missed it and hung on the rim. And I came down head first. And so I stuck my hands out like, like a diver. Right. And I ended up fracturing both of my wrists on landing. No. So my, my coach is off at, a, at the track meet. Everyone's looking around at me and I'm just like, just don't tell coach, just give me my coat. And I'm, I'm going to be, now I, I turned white. I remember, I remember, I remember feeling sick to my stomach, yeah. turning white and sweating profusely, oh. which is like the initial signs of shock. Right. Um, and they had to drape the jacket over my, over my arms. I couldn't grasp anything. They hung my keys on my pinky finger. And I'm like, I'm just going to walk out to the car. And I said, can someone just give me a, a, a glass of water? And they put the water in my hand and it fell right to the ground. You could, yeah. I get out to the car and I couldn't turn the key in, 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 in the door. And one of my teammates said, okay, we're going back in to see the trainer and off to the doctors to have. Because you were two- going to your car to go home. 
Yeah, to go back to my dorm. Yeah, you were going to the hospital. No, no, no. I was just, I just, I'm, I'm going to be fine. I, I, I got to meet in two days. Like, and I'm not supposed to be playing basketball right now. Uh, so you legit, I, I just, And I remember the next morning in the student center with two with casts on both hands and coach in line at the bank. You know, you, we all had to go and get meal money for the, oh, for, right, the for the meet. Right. Him like in line at the bank and just seeing me. Now, obviously, my trainer had called him even right. though I told her not to. Right, of course. And he's <laughs> just shaking trainers. his head. <laughs> shaking his head. And, and uh, because I really, really was in really good shape. Like I thought I was going to be, you know, be able to make the division three national championship in the four meter hurdles that mm. year. Um, but that was the end of, that was the end of my running for year number four. How long did you have to be in those casts? That's miserable. <sighs> yeah. There's probably some stories I can't tell. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. There's, but, yeah. 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 <laughs> But imagine uh, some of the things I was in cast for a long time, both hands, you know, I was in, I was in for you know, whatever it is, six weeks or, or whatever. Um, but you, I couldn't write. So like my French class, I was struggling in French to begin with now to have to do it entire, entirely orally. That, that was, a, that was a struggle. Um, <laughs> you know, I probably had to drop another class or so and delayed things a little bit more. Uh, oh, but that's wow. actually because I wasn't going to practice daily. Right, which is all that I did. I just lived to get down classes to go to practice. Well, now I don't have practice to go to. So I'm walking around campus and I literally saw a flyer about internships. And I, I, I kind of plotted this, this plan. Well, if I can go to DC in the first semester, then I can come back and I can run in my second semester. I still have this outdoor eligibility left. Right. Uh, now I don't know how I'm going to pay for school because you know my parents... My, my father and mother had always said, as long as you're doing well in school and you love running track, we can cover the cost of school for you. Wow. State school. Um, but if you're not doing well in school, then you need to get a job. On your own. Pay, yeah. pay for school yourself. Uh, there's no way I could ask them to pay for, for a fifth year. All right. Um, but I had to plan to be able to go to D.C. And, and I took out a little small student loan to be able to do so. Now, I covered the fifth year myself. Um, I actually commuted the second semester back and forth two hours, both directions from to make it affordable so I could run. Right? Wow. This, you know, again, this is division three. I'm a, I'm a, at this point, I'm a, I'm a 50 point 400 meter runner who can run 55 seconds, of 400 meter hurdles. Yeah. I still think I'm good. <laughs> you right? are like good. Enough, enough to, that. enough to drive two hours each day, enough to go back right. to school just to be able to run again. That's yeah. it, that was where my passion was. Uh, and I really didn't get back into the kind of shape I was the year before. I think had I, had I qualified for the division three national championships, I probably would have said my track, my track career has been fulfilled mm. and I would have gone on with life. Um, so breaking my wrists ends up being the best thing that ever happened to me as far as my coaching career was concerned, because it kept me in the sport. You know, basketball is like the bane of every track coach's from high school to college ever you have like one of the most like hey let me tell you what happens <laughs> do you have like any gnarly scars that you can like see our track team was had a really good basketball team on it our basketball team at the at, at, at umass what umass Alpha wasn't all that bad and we would we would play against those guys and play pretty darn close uh because we had we had a couple of guys on the team that they would have loved to have had played basketball for them but they were an all-American hurdler, an all-American long jumper. Right. They were every bit as good as division three basketball players. And uh, so we could hold our own. Yeah. How was yes. the, you're talking about you were 50 point in the open and 55 point maybe in the 400 hurdles, but you just mentioned a couple of all Americans. So that was the team pretty good. 
you know, we, we, we would hold our own. Uh, there weren't, there was no conference championship for us then. There's now called the Little East. There's actually a conference championship. But for us, it was always about qualifying for the ECAC Division Three meet, mm. the New England Division Three meet, the All New England Championships, and then the NCAA Division Three Championships. That was always how how we would you know look to do it. And uh, I mean, I remember learning about pen relays because when I was a freshman, we had a pretty good distance medley relay team where one of my closest friends, Ben Bruce McGonigal, was a really good 40 meter runner out of high school, and he got to go to pen relays. And I remember them all coming back, and they had posters. They back then, you when you ran at pen relays, you could order. They would take so many pictures of you that after it, you could order a picture of you competing. So you'd see the crowd, you'd see you and your uniform running and the beat, you know, and it would say pen relays across it. And, wow. and uh, to me, that was just the greatest thing ever. Like these sure. guys had their pictures on the wall of the, of the coach's office. Like I want to be that good. Sure. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we, no- we had, you know, Eric Lopes was the national champion in the 110 hurdles. He was my roommate. Dave Arujo was a really good long jump, triple jumper. He was, he was older. And all the cross country guys were, they were like my heroes because I was this little, little squirt freshman and, you know, they all had beards and, you know, could run 10 miles. And, uh, you know, I just, those were my guys. That's interesting. You know what we would now call a traditional like 10, 12 team conference, all these big New England champs and. Not, not. And, and it exists now. It just right. wasn't around. That's interesting. In the, in the early nineties. Was that the norm up there? And that's not the norm throughout the country. Cause we, well, I, I always remember that there was the NESCAC, right? Like they are, they, mm-hmm. that's Bowden Bates, Colby, Williams, Amherst, Wesleyan, Conn college, great elite private universities. They had a conference meet. Um, they had a little three they had, uh, was, which it's, which was, Williams, Amherst, and maybe Wesleyan. Um, again, all these really elite private universities yeah, that, uh, that I would follow their results, but we didn't have, we just didn't have a conference then. That's interesting. How just how different throughout the parts of the country. And then even, you know, some, we got listeners right now that, you know, only know about track from say 2010 and up. And so to hear that there was no, wait, you didn't have a 10 team conference. What do you mean? That that's, everybody's got a 10 team conference. So that's interesting. So we know we're about to learn more about this teach for America uh, in this internship. Uh, but at this point, is there any inkling in your mind about becoming a track coach? Uh, I have a, I have a, I have one memory of being at Brown university indoors in, in my fifth year. And I don't remember the name of, of the girl on the team who was hurdling and I was watching her and trying to give her some instruction. And I don't know if I got frustrated or said something sarcastically, but I remember her just, I remember, I mean, this is how many 30 something years ago. Yeah. I remember her saying, you're not my coach. So I remember that I must've been acting like a coach, even if it wasn't something in, in my mind. Hmm. Um, okay. Coach Hurd was awesome. He was, he, but he was a distance guy. And I do know that as we were driving to Brown for the, for, for workouts, I'd ask him, what's the workout going to be today? And he would suggest one thing and I would kind of suggest something else. And we would often end up doing what I would suggest. Hmm. Um, Cause he was coaching everything. Yeah. We, we, there really wasn't a sprint coach. He was right. the track and field coach for the track and field team. Right. You know, every once in a while, somebody would come in and they would be the jumps coach for like a year and then they'd right. be gone. Someone would be the throws coach for a year and then they'd be gone. Um, coach Hurd was always my coach. Uh, I don't know that we ever had a sprint coach. We kind of just 
did sprint stuff. Right. <laughs> Just did I remember watching, I remember, I remember being sat down to watch the original speed dynamics videos. Oh yeah. Which again is unbelievable because Lauren Seagrave just stayed at my house here in Jacksonville, right? Like I had no, awesome. I remember watching LSU on the national championships on CBS and Lauren Seagrave in the stands going, that's the guy that, that, that told shot. That's the guy who taught me how to do a skip. Cause I saw it on that video and he's like my dad in the sport. That is a classic. He's so responsible for everything from coaching education, but you know, that's, that's our five of the podcast. Who, who was it? it? It was Lauren and someone else that did speed. Dynamics. Lauren Seagrave and Kevin O'Donnell and Kevin. Kevin I just O'Donnell. spoke to Kevin. Two What's months he ago. Um, well, you know, Kevin was, he was in, he was, uh, besides being a high school teacher and, and speed dynamics, he was in an, uh, he was a financer. He was in investments. Um, oh, okay. And after all of that, he never got into college coaching. He was offered some college jobs, but it, he said they never paid enough. He was making so much money doing what he was doing, and he was pretty darn successful with mm. his high school teams, but also the speed dynamic stuff was, was pretty fruitful at the time. Mm. Um, and he, he now is a, is a high-end art dealer, still, still in Ohio. Um, and we, j- I mean, we chatted like a couple of months ago. In my garage, he sent me – Remember the speed ladder, like the original speed, like the acceleration ladder, uh-huh. right? Like the wooden tongs that you, you, you'd adjust them. All right. He sent me three of those. Like if, if there's ever a track and field like museum. Yeah. Right. I've got original stuff. Wow. He sent me all the speed dynamic videos on DVD. Like I have the, I still have the VHS tapes of all of them. Sprints and hurls volume one, sprints, sprints volume one, sprints volume two, hurls volume one, yeah. hurls volume two, nope. 13 seconds. Right, that was the Guy Drew story. Yeah, and then drills for speed. Yes, drills for speed. They had six of them, and uh, now I have all of them on, on, on with multiple DVD DVDs in my uh, in my garage because Kevin's. You know, he said, "I got a couple. Let me just send them to you." I'm like, "All right, dude." I still. I mean, I I don't have them anymore because I think I wore them out watching over and over. And I mean, it was like one of the first. Like, oh wow, there's like like you can become better at coaching. It's not just, you know, yelling at kids. Like it was the real, like, Oh, I can be, there's a professionalism to coaching track and field. I thought that to run 400 meters, you ran a bunch of 300s, you ran a bunch of 500s. Right. <laughs> That's what we did. And it meets up in the middle. <laughs> and, and then you race at 400 meters. Right. Uh, and, you know, turns out there's a whole lot more to it. A whole and lot. when, you know, uh, but yeah, so I, that's awesome. Those were, how did we get to this point? That, that those, yeah. were, those were my guys in, in coaching education. Yeah, that you were going to, where, where was coaching in your mind? So, okay, so you go to Teach for America. So you go to mm-hmm. LA, you're still a track geek because you're hanging out at, uh, is it Drake Stadium? Is that the name of UCLA? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so take us through there. You, you're doing this Teach for America, which is super cool. Love so, this. You know, you, you would, after a couple of weeks of intensive training, basically you're in, you're in seminars all day long. Because again, none of us, have any teaching background. Right. We're just idealists, right? We, we've, we've committed to doing this. We want to go be able to help people. What, what did, um, hold on. And then you get in the side. What, what did mom or dad think of this? Was this like, were they supportive or was this like, hey man, you're poli sci, why don't you go get a job? No, they, they absolutely. Uh, this was going to be, this was the job. Okay. This is, you right. know, I mean, they, they knew me, they knew my friends, they knew why I wanted to, to go do this. Um, and uh, so, I taught at Arlington Elementary on Arlington Boulevard, which, which intersects with Crenshaw. So 
I was in South Central Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and uh, I was full, in a full-on accent. <laughs> well, interestingly, my accent was significantly stronger then. Yeah, I taught in a sixth and seventh grade bilingual class. There were now by by teaching, I mean I was the assistant to the teacher, sure. right? Like you're just observing to start with, um, and there were three or four kids in the class who didn't speak any English right. and I didn't speak one word of Spanish. Um, right. And, and I remember they thought that I was from Australia because of my accent. <laughs> you were, they were like, who is this weird guy, man? He must be from Australia. <laughs> and, and he sounds like he's from Crocodile Dundee or something. He sounds like he's not from here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so you teach during the day and then you come back and you're right back into intensive classes in the evening and you did that wow. for the summertime. And then they dropped you off in your assignment. Okay. So my second plane flight was from LA to Baltimore. Wow, man. You, sh you arrive in Baltimore and they say, you have, you have, we have no place to live and we have no job yet. Seriously? You don't know where you're teaching yet. But you just know that you're- stay. University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. You have 72, you have three days, three days to find a place to live. Wow. Teach for America was at least allowed, they, they had a deal where we all got a $1,500 credit card, a, a credit card with a $1,500 limit on it. Right. So they weren't paying for that, but we had to have some way to even secure an apartment. Right. And so you're literally like, we're taking cabs to schools to meet principals or we'd come back or, or we'd take cabs out to look around town for, for an apartment. And then we'd get back to the, to the dorm and there'd be a bunch of principals there waiting, like almost like a, like a college fair. Right. And you yeah. just, they just start interviewing you. <laughs> and th three, three friends and I found a, 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 a four bedroom, which is now where the Raven stadium is. It's oh, like yeah. two blocks from Camden yards. Yeah. But Raven Stadium didn't exist then hmm. um, on West Barry Street. I'll never forget it. Uh, West Barry Street. The four of us got an apartment there. And two days before school started, I walked into George Street Elementary. And the principal said, Here is the, here's the second grade curriculum. And there is your room. And that was it. An empty room and a curriculum. Class starts in two days. Wow. In the building... There were three men, the vice principal, the janitor, and I. Um, How many have kids you ever in the watched class? the HBO series The Wire? Uh, I've heard of it. I never have watched it, though. Really critically acclaimed. Yeah, I heard um, it's great. Yeah. It was basically set in the same community that I, that I worked in. Oh, yeah. Um, except that when I left, the year that I left, they actually came in and put a fence around a three block radius and tore everything down the high rise, the, all the row houses, the school. Wow. It was the only way to change the the crime statistics in the area was wow. to was to was to tear it all down. And their idea was they were going to build houses and integrate the community, where one house would be for sale and one would be public housing and and, and, and that kind of thing. It's a beautiful neighborhood now, um, but if you ever watched The Wire, that's kind of that's where I taught for three years. How many kids were in that class? In your class. 28 to 30 or so how intimidating is it because you you got the curriculum two days before and then there's nearly 30 kids just staring at you i got some of the best advice that i've ever 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 gotten oh let's hear it the principal said you're teaching second grade 
you just have to be as smart as a third grader. <laughs> and and she, she it, it really put me at ease where, okay, that, it, I'm not teaching a subject that I don't understand. Right. right? It's not the subject that's the issue. The teaching is the issue. Uh, and, you know, just loving the kids and relating to them and, and, and wanting to be able to help them. It, it yeah. was... Uh, it was a remarkable experience. Challenging, oh, challenging. I mean, challenging and rewarding and heartbreaking, all those things uh, all the time. Uh, and I was all in. I mean, I was the guy that met the janitor in the morning to open the building. Yeah. And I was the person at night who was the last one to leave in the dark, where the principal was saying, you really shouldn't be leaving here in the dark. Mm. The, the community embraced me. I used to, awesome. I walked the kids home every day everything was fine. There was never an issue. Um, did you say you did this for three years? Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. It's a two-year program. I stayed into my third year and uh, it's part of how I got back in, into running and coaching though. Um, it was really intense. And obviously I'd stopped running mm -hmm. and yeah, where right was track in your life? Say it again? Where, where was track in your life at that point? Was it, it pretty, pretty, there was no yeah. room for any of it. Yeah. It was, everything was about being able to be adequate for these kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough neighborhood and, uh, and they needed love and support and I wanted to be, I wanted to be good. And so what I remember very vividly to this day, I remember that if I somehow woke up at one or two o'clock in the morning, the lives of these children would be on my mind. I mean, I, I remember Timal Lynch, Curtis Gillespie, Danny Battle, Courtney Johnson. I remember them clearly Dude, and yeah. I know what they were going through. Oh, and so yeah. my mind was always racing that. I, so teacher burnout is a real, real thing. Mm -hmm. Like anything is if, if you're, if you're so engulfed in it. And that's how I got back into running is uh, somewhere around Thanksgiving issue of my first year. Like I needed a release. Mm -hmm. So when I left the building and it was dark out, a couple of miles up the road was John Hopkins University. Mm -hmm. They had a four-lane track that had lights. So I got track and field quarterly review with the Clyde <laughs> Hart, with the Clyde Hart 400 meter article in it. Yeah. Three by 600, three by 300, three by 300. <laughs> and I just went, this is Monday, this is Tuesday. And I would leave the, leave the school, drive up there, change in the car, and I would start doing workouts just for the stress relief. And so that I could be tired and sleep through the night. Now, what I find interesting there is that you went to, for your stress relieving going into running was still to do workout, you know, 600s and 400s, et cetera. Because this is where we hear a lot of people who were sprinters and even throwers, jumpers, where as they become, you know, 25 ish and they're in a career, they move to, oh, well, now I'm starting to run 5Ks and all this kind of stuff. You, you kept into the workout phase. There were, uh, there were little track meets. I can't even remember the name of the little track club around. Um, they had these little summer track meets uh, and I found out about them. So I was showing up at these, at these, you know, eventually I was showing up at these races. So I was still, I was still being a sprinter. Yeah. Um, I actually uh, was able to fulfill a lifelong dream in that first year. You know, I met this guy, Jerry Robinson, who ran at Penn state and uh, met him at one of these meets and we just, you know, he, he was a 40 meter hurdle. I was a 40 meter hurdle. We started training together and um, we met a couple of other guys and we put together an Olympic development four by four and ran at Penn relays. 
No. So I ran the 400 meter hurdles in the Olympic development section at Penn Relays. And I ran on a four by four a couple of years at Penn Relays post-collegiately. And to me, that was like I, I was at the Olympics. All Remember, my, these guys were on the wall in my coach's office. Yes. It was all I ever wanted to do, reading about it in track and field news. And now here I am in the, on the track. Um, I remember I had an all red speed suit. I had these red Nike spikes. I mean, I'm blown away by this. That is, I mean, first of all, to learn that is amazing, but I, I can feel it. Like, I, I, like that's, it's, it's hard to describe what you had to feel like, oh, I've made it. Like, this has been my dream, you know, again, the posters and that's you know, awesome. I, and I think that a lot of people, when they, maybe their college experience might burn them out a little bit. And they kind of just be just done with track. Sure. I was fortunate enough. It's, and I know it's not the way that it is, but because of how underdeveloped I was, really how bad I was when I started, until I broke my wrists, every single race I ran, every single race I ran was a personal best. It was always faster. My, my first indoor meet was faster than my last outdoor meet. It just kept going. And I kept getting better and better too. And it, it, that continued. You know, I broke my wrists. I went backwards. But I got better post-collegiately doing this doing my Clyde Hart training and and uh and um and doing you know I was training more like a like an 800 meter runner I guess yeah have you told Clyde that story no but but I'll but he did sit on a, on one on a four one of my other memorable highlights was being asked to give a lecture for for the USTFCCA convention mm -hmm. on 400 meters and it was actually a high school 400 meter talk and I knew some of my friends that were college coaches were going to be in the room, mostly high school coaches in the room, but in walks five dudes in Baylor shirts led by Clyde Hart front and center. And to think that here's, and this is well past Michael Johnson years. This is well past. I mean, this is a guy who's considered one of the best, if not the best 40 meter coaches of all time. Why on earth is he going to see, some no-name dude talk about high school 400 meter running at the national convention when he could be doing anything he wants. Like to me, that spoke volumes to me. Yeah. And, and afterwards he came up and we had some words, he, he, you know, he gave me some good compliments and we talked about, uh, we talked about how he always thought the, the energy systems were, were one too high, right? Like whatever, whatever the percentages that they said were the 400 was really the percentages for the 200, mm -hmm. whatever the percentage they said was the right. 800 was really for the 400 from right. a, from a, aerobic anaerobic breakdown we, we had some, some nice words but he was sure to come up and, and say nice things and it was just you know again it's a career highlight uh but he was yeah, in, in, he's an amazing dude like, absolutely yeah that's so cool wow uh yeah he's got to know that story honestly i mean that just to know that hey this article you wrote uh, you know you have no idea the impact it made but let me tell you one well, I mean, everybody's seen that article right like you know <laughs> it, it's 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 uh, right now you know everybody will will sense it you know where we are with the, the Training design is a lot like politics. The pendulum keeps swimming, swinging back and forth, right? Yes. Before it was 600s and 500s and 400s. Now it's fly 10s only, right? Nothing and over 50 meters. Or five you know what seconds. the answer is? The answer is actually it's both, but right. that's, that's personal opinion. But uh, so, yeah, but that article is really famous. And uh, it was in Track and Field Quarterly Review. It was allowed me to just go, that's Monday, that's Tuesday, that's Wednesday, that's Thursday. I can leave the school, not think about it, get to the track. And uh, Johns Hopkins is a Division three school but they played division one lacrosse hmm. and they were like a top five division one lacrosse program. They probably still are. Yeah. And 
that was always my cue. I'd be out there running and it, it'll be, you know, it's six, seven o'clock at night, it's dark out. And all of a sudden the doors would open and out would come 50 dudes and those balls hurt. Oh yeah. So yeah, that was my cue. You gotta get out of here. Like, yeah, yeah. but it was, you know, I'm a division three guy. This was a real high level hell program, but that's uh so that was the John Hopkins that's training. So cool. And it led to you running at the pin relays. It led to me running at that's the pin amazing. relays. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. So where I mean, it, it led, it led to my coaching. Um, yeah. So as I say, where does this go to coaching and. So one of my three roommates was coaching at a, I was teaching at Carver vocational technical high school, which is where Bernard Williams, one of the hundred meter sprinter. Oh yeah. He actually ran his senior year there the year after I, a year after I was there, but Bernard Williams was there. He was kind of famous, but they had a pretty good track program. Um, she was a high school teacher there and she was an assistant girls volleyball coach there. They did not have a girls track team. She comes home one day and says, the athletic director wants to start a girls track program. And I said, I know somebody who might be interested in coaching. Are you interested in coaching? I said, well, if I, if I can, if I can fit it into the schedule, I went up and interviewed with the guy. And so now I would go from, this got me out of school earlier. <laughs> so as soon as elementary school ended, instead of staying in my office all day or staying in my classroom, grading papers and planning, it made me leave the building. Mm-hmm walk whoever I was walking home and then get in my car and drive a mile up the road to Carver vocational technical high school. And I had four girls. And so the four girls, that was the four by one. That was the four by four. (laughs) That was the sprint medley. We had a pretty good sprint medley. Um, Western high school was like a juggernaut. They won Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And I remember us beating Western high school in one of those relays and and, and in the first year and being like, man, I, I can do this. So I taught one year of, I mean, I coached one year of high school girls track. When track practice was over, then I would run on Carver's track. Wow. And Coppin State College did not have a track. Coppin State College was a quarter of a mile up the road on North Avenue. So they would come down to run on Carver's track. But with NCA rules, they couldn't be practicing when we were practicing. Mm. So they would get there early and they'd sit in the stands, the athletes and the coaches, as we were finishing up practice and then inevitably they'd be working out and I'd be working out at the same time. Hmm. And, you know, I remember there being a small meet at Towson university where I ran my personal best. I ran 53, 11 or something like 53, 17 for the four meter hurdles. I don't even know what place I, 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 I want, but I know that I beat all the, the, the Coppin state guys that day. And the head coach who I'd gotten to know Ernie Barrett, came to me in the parking lot and said, next year, they're going to give me a part-time assistant coach. Would you want to be that coach? I'm, I'm a division three going to be asked to be a sprint coach at an HBCU, a division one HBCU. How, how do I, how did I get here? Right. I'm going to get, I'm going to get paid. So I'm (laughs) getting my teaching salary Plus I'm getting this $10,000 coaching salary. Right. I'm, I'm like, I'm rich. Yeah. <laughs> so now I would leave elementary school and go and get bypass Carver high school and go right to the university. And that was my, my very first college coaching job was as a sprint coach at an HBCU. What are you doing? Cause you are, and, and we're going to get into this uh, 
I'll, I'll, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. You're really big into coaching education. I know what it's done for your career and what you have given back as your own uh, topics that you've spoken on and, and taught and things like that. Where are you in coaching education at this point? Is it still just the quarter, the track and field news quarterly? Is there any, I don't even know what we had for coaches ed back then. So I called John Hurd, my college coach. Hmm. And I say, coach, I'm a division three guy. I'm being asked to be a sprint coach at a division one school. Like, should I do this? I hadn't, I didn't, hadn't decided. I called my college coach and he said, absolutely. I said, I don't know how to recruit. He said, okay, here's recruiting. Figure out who they get normally and then just try to expand the envelope a little bit. Hmm. You don't have to try to be That's the greatest really of all time. Just be a little bit better. Just try to expand the envelope a little bit. That's really good advice. <laughs> that was when Diestat had just started. Oh, like the yeah. original Diestat. Right there in Maryland. Right there, yep. Yeah. And and getting that list and trying to figure out how to get a hold of these kids. Remember the the, the big high school uh, athletic director's book. We had look in there to find the athletic director and the and yep. the and the phone number and maybe the high school coach's name. And you start calling the school. Like that's how you, that's how we try to find. That was the but, Bible, man. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then he said, and go to USA Track and Field Coaching Education. Like they have courses where you can start to learn this stuff. And so that's where coaches education began. The summer before I started coaching, I drove 12 hours from Baltimore to Atlanta, Georgia, walked into a USA track and field level one school at Georgia Tech, yep. put on by Wendy Trevelyan. Yeah. <laughs> and who steps up to give the sprint talk? Lauren Seagrave. Lauren freaking Seagrave. The <laughs> guy that I watched one. this video of. And, and, and Kevin O'Donnell and Oscar Jensen doing the throws. And Pat Pretty doing the doing the, the endurance. Wow! Yeah. I mean, these are the original. These yeah. are the OG coaching education people. And I remember being smart enough to bring a little tape recorder. And I swear to God, I still have the cassettes wow. in my closet. I'm, I'm having my house painted, and I just saw them like wow. a day ago. I have the little cassettes, so I recorded everything. I took all these notes, and then on my 12 hours home, I listened to the whole thing again, and I could give the speed dynamics talk <laughs> by the end of that because i i, I it, and this was all brand new to me the mm. nerve what, what the heck's the nervous system right what you mean sprint you mean run fast that's how you run fast by running fast right, right? so i know we're doing feed the cats but speed dynamics was the original originator right. of this at least in my mind i'm sure that they learn from others yeah right? I, I don't um, know I, I know feed the cats is extremely popular it's all over my social media i don't know yeah um, actually but um but because you didn't come from a science background so nervous you're right so nervous no, is like i don't know no, uh, yes i came from a science background political science political. <laughs> <laughs> a little different so yes all the biomechanics and the physiology right. and, and and the sports psychology everything was learned through coaching education. Yep, yep. Um, and Lauren and Kevin gave out their phone number and their email address. Mistake. <laughs> well, and I think most people don't use that when they, when they do. Right. Right. I mean, I know that I give mine out and very few people actually reach out, but some do. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I reached out to Lauren and Kevin and they took my calls and they kept taking my calls and they kept taking my calls and they, they said, they said, you really, you're ready for level two. So, well, you know, level two, it says you have to have, hmm. a, you have to have a full calendar year has to, has to happen before they said, apply to level two. So like two months after getting my level one, 
I was at Westchester University getting my level two sprints and hurdles with Lauren and Kevin. And I have a good story. Uh, sitting behind me is Paul Souza. Paul Souza from Wheaton College, Massachusetts. I didn't know we, Wheaton College is literally 15 minutes from my house. My it, parents' no idea. It, it's two towns over, North Massachusetts. I had no idea what it was. Uh, Turns out it, it used to be an all women like until 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 the late 80s, it was an all women's college, little small division three school. But I already knew who Paul Souza was because my dad used to take me to high school basketball games when I was in middle school. And he would tell me, we're going to go watch this kid from, from Mansfield play, Paul Souza. And this dude could stroke it from the outside. He could score and score and score. No, no three-point line. All um, right. And he ended up being like, he was like an age group world record holder on a high jump. But I just knew him. I knew that I used to go watch you. Hey, man, I watched you play basketball in high school. So here we are in West Central Pennsylvania and in a coaching school and sitting behind me. I'm like, I know you. How do you know me? I used to watch you play basketball when you were in high school. We hit it off. Now, Paul at this time has a big, long ponytail, right? And his personality is massive. And I'm a showman. And in our level two school, Instead of putting in the speed dynamics video, he goes, I got a video I want to put in. He puts in his MTV rock and roll. I mean, he, he had a video on MTV. What? He's the lead, lead, lead singer. He was a great, Paul Souza is a great singer. Yeah, I know he's a great singer. I didn't know he had this MTV video. Yeah, I mean, we're, 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 now we're talking late 80s, sure. early 90s. Sure. Um, long hair, the whole, the whole deal. Uh, and Paul, God love him. Paul wasn't all that interested in the curriculum. He was interested in hanging out afterwards, right? So at the rat, the rat was the was the, the rat skeller, the, the you know the the after bar. Yeah, yeah. And not me. Like every minute, every second I can get, I'm asking Lauren questions. I'm asking Lauren questions. And Paul's like, "Hey, you know, you ever think they want to break from that?" <laughs> I stopped to go. I never thought of it that. Like it, re it really stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, oh, they can't be all track all the time, right? just because I was right. because I'm trying to get every, every ounce of knowledge. And uh, so I kind of just hung out and we really became close friends. We, we had a project due. I think Paul spent a lot of his time at, at, at the rat with Lauren and Kevin. <laughs> I did this awesome project. And uh, Paul says to me, Hey, I'm going to have a coaching job. I want you to want you to move home and come coach me. I'm like, Hey man, I got a teaching job. I got a division one coaching job, right. I'm making good money, but I wasn't really doing a ton of coaching at Coppin. Like hmm. I was trying to do the stuff that, that I had learned, but the head coach, who's a great guy gave my first coaching job. I'm the God godfather to his first born daughter to Tasia, oh, um, wow. who's now graduated unbelievable from high from college. Unbelievable. Uh, Ernie, who was a 46.146 guy from George Mason was like unbelievable. Uh, from Clarendon College, high school in Jamaica. Hmm. Um, obviously, he's going to coach the good guys, and where he just sent me off to, to the other people. All right. Well, every some of those guys got to be pretty good, and so and some of his guys weren't getting good. So he'd just say, he'd basically say, "You you got this guy now, and I got that guy." I'm like, right. man, every time I make somebody good, you you take them. Um, but Paul said, "You're going to get to coach." 
You're going to write your own training. You're going to coach. You're going to recruit. And the stuff that Lauren and Kevin do, we can do that. I'm, I, we're going to we're going to we're going to make our own videos. We're going to do lectures. And I'm going to get you a, a <laughs> I'm going to get you a, a job as an RA. So you have a place to live. And I'm like, man, oh, this is going to be great. Interesting. So I gave up my teaching job. I gave up my coaching job, packed all my things and moved back to Massachusetts and was living on my parents' couch, making $1,500 a season, $1,500 for cross country, $1,500 for indoor track, $1,500 for outdoor track. The RA deal didn't come through. So I'm still living at home. And Paul is a full-time teacher. Like his, his, as the head coach, he was part-time. So I was really part, part part-time. Um, and the program was only three years old, two, two or three years old. And so I ended up taking a job stocking shelves midnight to eight. Wow. So I'd be at school all day, coaching, recruiting. Well, actually, my recruiting was, li- was listening to him recruit. He would take me home. We would, for, you know, he'd take me to the Irish embassy. I'd get a, um, I would get a, uh, what was it? A chicken Parmesan sandwich with these great steak fries. <laughs> he bought me dinner every night. And we went back to his house where his young kids, Miles and Cameron, they were little kids. And they're now, you know, one's out and one's a, 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 a comedian and writer out in LA. Um, unbelievable how, how they've wow. grown. I would listen to him on the phone recruiting. He'd start calling kids and talking to him. And I'd just sit there and listen. And when it was over, I'd say, well, what did they say? That's how I learned to recruit. Huh by listening to him. And in year number two, our women finished second in the NCAA indoors and outdoors and the men were top 10. Hmm. And our four by, you know, our, our four by four men's team ran three ten or three eleven. Um, yeah. The women ran three forty four, forty six point. I mean, we, we got to be pretty good. And that's when I realized I could coach Paul recruited he gave me all this great talent, but then I got to write the training and we got really good. We got so good that we won the all new England. The women won the all new England four by one and four by four. And I think the men won the four by four. Um, and, and, you know, we were beating the scholarship teams and uh, two years there where I learned how to coach. Did you go from Wheaton to Jacksonville? Then I went to Wheat from Wheaton, Jacksonville because so- so I had this great Ford Explorer because again, I had this great teaching job with this nice, nice coaching part-time job. I had no debt in my life. Mm-hmm. So I bought a Ford Explorer <laughs> one night I'm at, so I, I, I would, after, after recruiting with Paul, then I would take my car and go to the, to the, to Shaw's supermarket and I would stock shelves from midnight to eight. Mm. Well, uh, I don't even know the reason why, but one day I took my mother's car instead of my Ford Explorer and it's two o'clock in the morning and I get a, a, a there's a, a message on the intercom at the, at the grocery store. It's your dad. I'm like, something is terribly wrong if my right. dad's calling me at two o'clock in the morning. Right. So I'm like, uh, a kid I went to high school with Stevie Fonts is here. He's a police officer in Sharon. Stevie Fonts is here. They're repossessing your car. I mean, I hadn't made a, I wasn't making any money. I was making $3,000 a year, $4,500 a year. So I stopped paying on my car. My car was repossessed. I filed bankruptcy. <laughs> All of that is to say it was the most important decision I ever made was to coach at Wheaton College. 
I learned to coach mm. and learned to recruit there. Doesn't matter what else happened. We were really good. Who cares that my I filed bankruptcy? Paul Souza taught me so much, and we were good, and we were off and running. But from there, from there, uh, I, I did have to kind of get paid, right? Like, like it was cool, except I'm not in my young 20s anymore, right? Now we're talking right. about 1998. I'm 28 years old, living in my parents' house, filing bankruptcy. Like now, I'm now I'm driving my mother to work in the morning and taking her car to school. My father's picking my mother up. I'm, I'm, now I'm imposing upon people. Right. So uh, do you remember the old uh, NCAA news, the, the the paper version? I do, yeah. Right, like you'd go to your mailbox at your at your university and you'd, you'd get the NCAA news and what's the first thing you did? Go to the get the stories, right to the, right to the two sections of who moved where, yep. right? There was a list of this this university hired this person. Yep. Well, then you go, well, wait a minute, that means that job's open. Yep. And you just watch everybody move around and then you look over to the help wanted, yep. right? But we also know how jobs happen in the NCAA, right? Like mm-hmm. when a job's posted, it's already, they already know who, somebody else is, somebody already knows who they're, who they're hiring. I'm, I, have, I think I'm the first and only person to ever get a job from the NCA news. <laughs> Jacksonville University, 1980, no, excuse me, 1998. Yeah, I was going to say the 90s. Yeah. 1998, in this very office I'm sitting in right now, which is a whole nother story, the woman, it, it was, was going to be a $12,000 job which big, is not a lot of money, raise. big pay raise, it's not you. a lot of money, but it is when you're making $4,500. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so first of all, because it's only $12,000, most people don't want the job. Secondly, of that $12,000, 8,000 of it is going to be paid by facilities. I'm going to, I'm going to paint the football and soccer fields. Oh, I'm going to take tickets right. to the baseball game. I'm going to change light bulbs at the gymnasium. I'm going to do whatever they need to do during the day so that I can coach in the afternoon and recruit in the evening. And they gave me an apartment across the street. That saved everything. Oh, I have no nice. housing to pay for. Nice. Paul Souza actually gave me his wife's old car because my car's possessed. He gives me this, you know, beat up cutlass supreme, caprice, <laughs> whatever it was. It made it from it made it from, from Florida to Jacksonville. I drove right by the university and drove right to the beach, parked right at Atlanta Boulevard and went right on the ocean. Did you really? Then came up to the university. Uh, found out where, I, there was no, uh, yeah, I, I did my interview. I remember my interview. My, they flew me from, from, le, I was in Baton Rouge at level two jump school. Hmm. And I flew in during the off day. Remember how you had the, you had the off day in between All right. where everybody, the stories of yep. what they did when they went to, to New Orleans, I missed that day. Jackson University flew me in for an interview and flew me back so I could finish the second half of school. Cause the first half of level two is the sports sciences. Right. The second half is is the sports specific right so in between i i uh came here interviewed and i remember i remember going for a run with paul around one of the fields next to the track in tears telling him that i was going to be leaving wheaton i'm going to take a job at jackson university i I mean remember remember it very well now knowing paul he was happy for you yes yeah yeah of course he was yeah now we we were like Batman and Robin, man. I mean, it was, uh, it was a team. Yeah. And now he, we, 
some good coaches came in after me, including Mark Mangiacotti, one of my closest friends. Um, so the tradition carried on. They always did really well. In fact, the year after I left, I think the women won four, five, six national championships in a row. Wow. Um, so I always tell Paul, see, as soon as I left, I was holding you back. <laughs> everything, everything got good. Um, they started winning national championships once I was gone. But uh, so from Wheaton College to Jacksonville University, where I'm a part-time assistant coach because they just built the track. Mm. It was basically a distance only program. Becky Motley was in, in, in charge. They had a, a, a women's distance coach and Steve Kern was the men's coach. And he was actually a Massachusetts guy, mm. all distance runners. And my job was to start recruiting sprint hurdle jumpers. And that's what I did. So at this point, are you a track coach? And what I mean by that is, is this your profession now? Or is there still, if something else came along? Uh, the thing that might've come along, that the thing that did come along that I turned down a number of times, Kevin O'Donnell asked me on a couple of occasions. He said, Ron, Lauren and I can't keep doing this forever. Like we can't keep being on the road. And we actually have a Speed Dynamics 400 and 400 hurdle program already written and ready to be filmed. Wow. You come and move to Cleveland. I'll give you a job in the investment firm. I'll teach you that business, but you can be the Speed Dynamics you can be like the next generation. You can, you can go out and do, you can do all this. I didn't want to leave college coaching. Wow. Somebody always said, once you get out, you won't be able to get back in. Wow. And as flattered as I was to be offered something like that from the people who I held to such esteem. Uh, so you're, to answer your question, I'm absolutely a college track and field coach. That is my career. So the way I got into coaching track was I called the local high school when I was in college and I called the, tr the track coach, you know, I also played high school football. I very easily could have called the high school football coach. And sometimes I think, man, if I had just called that football coach, that might be a million dollar offensive coordinator or something somewhere. Do you ever think, right. man, if I'd have taken Kevin, you could up, be Nick Saban. Well, yeah. Uh, but for you, do you ever think, man, maybe I could be a financial analyst. I could be making millions and still be a track guy, still be a speed dynamics creator. I have thought a little bit about what a political career might've been like. Um, I've really never thought about anything else. Hmm. Uh, my, my, my thought is after a while is I don't know what else I can do. Hmm. Right. Like I, I've, I've joked with a lot of people uh, is that, I, I mean, what are you going to do if you don't coach track? I'm going to go be a bag of Publix. I'm just going to go down the street to Publix and bag groceries and, <laughs> I've heard you say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess th that's my other qualification, I suppose. So during this time, this is the late nineties. Uh, I alluded to it when we first started today. Uh, you know, just a fantastic, you know, we sometimes lift up the past, but we, we had a blast at that time. You and Todd and Chris and I, we were recruiting a lot of the same kids in the same places in Georgia and Florida and Alabama and such. Uh, and just remember just some just some amazing times driving into Florida and you'd be at a meet. And, uh, and I do remember, I'm going to embarrass uh, Chris a little bit here. So this is the difference between, you know, me and you, Ron. So when we would be at track meets and we'd come over and sit by you, you'd be talking, you'd be talking speed dynamic stuff. You'd be saying, look at this kid here, look at how she does this. And he does this. And, oh man, if you just correct it, I mean, you were, you were in, you were all in much like your, your teaching, you were all in. Bap and I used to sit up atop of the, uh, the stands and during the two mile and one mile heats, we would make bets on, we'd pick our 
our horse, but not to win. We'd pick who would get last. <laughs> That's how terrible <laughs> we were so uninter uninterested in some of this stuff. It was, it was not like, oh, let's go watch the long jump. Let's go watch. It was like, oh man, see that one right there? Yeah, that one's last. It was terrible in hindsight. I can't believe we did this, but it was clearly evident guys like you and Todd uh, and eventually Bath, he got around to it and became pretty good himself too, that you guys, even though you were in your infancy of coaching, we all were at that point, something was there like it was going to be uh i don't want to overstate it and say we saw okay these are the next great coaches these are the next boosh naders and and uh, uh, um, uh lawrence seagraves but we knew okay these guys you're going to do something and do something really really positive uh talk to how long were you talk to us about that time at jacksonville how long were you there for that point because we're going to talk a little bit here about how you transitioned and you took a, another uh, job at another institution. Tell, tell us how long you were there at Jacksonville for the first step. Well, before we do, I, I, you're, you're downplaying your, you know, how hard you and BAP were working because what I remember vividly about sitting in the stands at Florida Relays watching high school races or the Florida High School State Championship, both at the University of Florida, so it was one of the other, was saying, you know, I could say there's a kid and, and, and she's run this, this, and this, and not only would you and BAP already know who they were, but then you would reach in your bag and pull out their transcript. Like <laughs> yeah. you all were getting after it. And I remember that like, man, I, I got to step my game up because <laughs> I think I'm doing a good job and these guys are way ahead of me. Um, so yeah, that we, we had a lot of fun times in the stands and, and just being, uh, just going through the grind together. Yeah. But um, I, I was only here for a year and a half. Um, my very first recruiting class, the very first person that I signed was Monique Tubbs. Monique Tubbs wow. was relatively unknown. She ran like 710 or 704 in the 55 meters, um, which was pretty darn fast. You know, it's, it's, but again, the, the internet's in its infancy. Yeah. So you'd have to get the track and field news and it only goes like five or 10 deep on a high mm -hmm. school list. Um, and she ran at a smaller school, Boston Latin Academy, uh, and they didn't travel to a bunch of meets. And, and I'm from Massachusetts, and I knew the high school coach from my time at, at Wheaton. Right. And she lived with her grandmother. Nobody else. Knew. I had her phone number. So I'm talking to her all along, huh. recruiting, 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 uh, brought her down for a visit. Um, I mean, I remember she's saying Michigan State, Georgia Tech, LSU, Texas, all, all started recruiting her. Uh, but I think I got a shot. I go up to the, to, the, to the high school national championships back when they had two of them. Mm -hmm. One of them was the Reggie Lewis Center in Boston. Mm -hmm. And she ran 736 for 60 meters and wins the high school national championship. And I'm jumping up and down like crazy going, yeah. And I stop and go, wait a minute. She hasn't signed yet. <laughs> she has to sign with me and people look at me like I'm an idiot. And then I look up in the stands and there's a line of uh -huh. people lined up to talk to her mother. And I'm like, <laughs> including all, I'm like, it's over. Done. Like she ran too fast. Yep. Monique, who still is in Jacksonville, um, oh. who bought a house in Jacksonville before I did, who was on the board of trustees at Jacksonville University for a while, how successful she became. Track was not her end all be all. And I, and I think that's probably... I don't think I know. I know that's a big reason why she chose Jacksonville University is I'm not sure she wanted to be 
a sprinter at a top five sprint powerhouse where track is all that you do. Right. Um, so for whatever reason, that amount of work, she ends up signing here. And because she signed here, a couple of other pretty good girls signed here, including Andrea Presley, who ended up finishing fourth at the yeah. NCAA championships in, in the, in the heptathlon. She was a, a 400 meter hurdler. She was a 400 meter runner, 56 second 400 meter runner who ran 14, eight in the hurdles. Nobody was really recruiting her, mm. but for us, we didn't have anybody. That's a full scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said she wanted to try the pentathlon. She was a big, strong girl. She ended up being able to do everything really well and scored 53, 5,400 points by the time she was done. Wow. So those were the first two people I signed, uh, wow. uh, uh, you know, six time all American. She wins the NCAA championship as a sophomore, uh, Andrea and then Safia Davy was a was a hurdler who never lost a hurdle race in our conference and and uh, and you know qualified for the for the for the regionals and things like that when back when they first came out. Um, mm-hmm. But all of those kids signed with us in the first signing class, and Lauren Seagrave is still my greatest. He, he's my mentor, but we're also good friends. And he calls me up. He's like, "Hey, man, Kansas State wants a sprint coach, somebody to to be an assistant to Cliff Revelto." It's, it's, it's the big time. Uh, I've told him all about you. He's going to call you. So these kids that I just recruited are on campus. Like I never saw them running a race because it's September, October and November of, so it's my set. I was there a year. I was only here a year and a half, really not even a year and a half, one year where I'm doing all this recruiting. Those (laughs) kids all get here. I'm coaching my butt off with them through the first couple of months. Lauren calls. Cliff flies me out to Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, it reminds me, I've, I've seen football interviews because I've worked here long enough that I'm next to the football offices. He put me, he said, here's, here's a piece of chalk. There's the chalkboard. Design a week of training. Oh, I love that. Wow. Okay. Now, okay. Now take that day and design the day of training. And I, and I just, I love that. And, uh, and then we talked about recruiting. Um, Steve Fritz picked me up at the airport. I mean, fourth in the Atlanta Olympics in, in the, in the decathlon. Um, Vanita Kennard, who was like, I don't know. I think she, in a win, I think she actually broke the collegiate record wind aid in the triple jump while she was at Kansas state. She was training there post collegiately. Yeah. Uh, all these great Nathan Leaper, all these great high jumpers. Were all, I had a joke. No, nobody wanted to go to Kansas state as out of high school. But every single one of them wanted to come to Kansas state <laughs> after they graduated from college to be right. by cliff. Like yep. they didn't know better. Right. They all went to the sexy places, but then right. they all wanted to be really coached afterwards when they get ready to the Olympics. Right. So all these Olympians are there. I'm like, I, I got to. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I left Jacksonville almost as quickly as I got here, figuring it was just the next step. So this would have been. This was 99. 19, it was like, it was the fall of 1999. I left at Thanksgiving and was, yeah. was in Manhattan, Kansas before the first semester ended. Yeah. So you go there. That's interesting. I don't think I put two and two together. This was only about a year and a half for you. I, I was thinking in my head, I had five or six years, even though the timeline wasn't working out. Um, probably, I think just because of the amount of memories I have of that time. It's just intense. It was intensity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you go to Kansas state and what you, I, I, I doubt you would know this because this was kind of internal. So for guys like me, you know, I'm at Troy University at that time. And we all think that, like you said, you know, the big time, and I did air quotes there, uh, if you're listening to us on the um, podcast here, uh, you know, the power five, that is supposed to be the be all in all. If 
you know, you're not coaching there. You're not a coach and all this other kind of crap to be real honest with you. Um, but at that point, you know, I was a 20 something year old, you know, rookie, it was all about getting there. And so here is one of the guys, Todd, BAP, Ron, and myself, one of the, the little four musketeers here, one of us makes it, you made it to Kansas state. And I remember thinking like, it just gave me hope. It was like, Oh, and not that I necessarily, I, I definitely in, you know, I, I had and still have an ego. Some people would say an ego issue, but uh, I didn't think like, Oh, I'm better than Ron. So if Ron can do it, I can do it. It was more, um, we, I probably thought of us as very on the same level until you went to Kansas state. <laughs> uh, but I was like, Oh, wait, if Ron can do it, then maybe I could possibly do it one day. And by chance, so he's at Kansas State up in Manhattan, I get the head coaching job at a junior college in Kansas. So I, I, I'm just following Ron's lead here. I go to Kansas. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny, we actually didn't even see each other all that much <laughs> when uh, I did a one year in Kansas. We didn't even get to see each other all that much just because of travel and all that stuff. But so I hold, you know, there's a, I always say that, you know, there's some amazing coaches out there uh, that I hold high in high esteem, but there's about five that are just another level up for me. Uh, Boo Shexnader is one of those and is one of those for many people. Uh, Cliff Revelto is one of those five of just, you know, there's some smart coaches and then there's, like, I can't even describe what I think of his intelligence level as far as coaching and how to communicate that coaching. What was it like working? First of all, how long were you there? And what was it like to be almost an understudy of Cliff's? Yeah, um, I don't want to jump jump ahead too much. Uh, I was only at Kansas State for a year and a half, right? And so uh, it's funny because then the group that we used to hang out with, including Jim Van Ottegem, was always saying to me, was saying, man, you never stay in one place. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's and now, now if we look at Jim, if we look at Jim's <laughs> yeah. resume, we know a guy who's yeah, moved yeah. around a little yeah, bit. Let's right? not point fingers, but, Jimmy V. <laughs> but uh, they were natural progressions for me. Um, and, you know, we, we, we won a lot at Wheaton. And actually my one year at, at Coppin was the only time Coppin's ever won a women's conference championship. Now, it's a little bit more coincidental, but I'd like to say I, I had some role in it. Sure. We won a lot at Wheaton. Um, we got some really good recruits at Jacksonville University, and then we got to Kansas State, and and we, it was the first. We won the uh, the Big Twelve championship. It was the first time that a team other than Texas and Nebraska had won it um, on the women's side. Uh, now again, I'm just in the right place at the right time, but I've been around just good people. Um, Cliff Revelto is is a brilliant, brilliant guy. Like. Law school, um, coached the discus, coached cross country. Yes. Ne- didn't have a track background. Like, like a lot of great coaches, a lot right. of great track and field coaches that you can go back and look at, they never were involved. They were just coaches. Right. Right. Or, or they were just really smart people who figured it out. I mean, Lawrence Seagrave didn't have a track background. He had a hockey huh. background. <laughs> Lawrence Seagrave went to school to study plant pathology. I mean, is just brilliant. Huh. You know, track is, is how, you know, kind of where, where he worked his way to. Um, Cliff is so even keeled. I learned, I learned how to recruit from Paul Souza. Uh, I think all of my coaching mentors have helped me to learn how to coach. And I was a pretty good parrot. I could, I could copy and steal and, mm-hmm. and do it a certain way, even before I understood it and then figure it out as I, as I went along. Right. Uh, Cliff Revelto taught me how to run a track and field program. Interesting. 
Uh, he is so even keeled. He's the steady ship. Like he's got people, qual- you know, Olympic medalists and he has kids three foul and you can never tell the difference. Hmm. Um, he is really even keeled. He is, he is a deeply intelligent guy. Uh, and he just, he taught me about, you know, really how to scholarship. The thing that I learned most interesting was if you're trying to win team championships, you have to have some semblance of balance and you have to have some formula as to how you're going to, you can't just keep putting scholarships into the same event area over and over again, because eventually you get a kid on a huge scholarship that even if they're fast, they're not faster than your three other kids. So if the best they can finish is fourth and you have them on this massive scholarship, you know, you, you, so he would turn down, he was going to get, he was going to get recruits at the, at the right price. Like he understood that if you have a full scholarship someplace else, and that's the important piece, then take it. But I need to be able to have this level athlete at this size scholarship. And he taught me that the way there's only two ways to get better. You get a better kid on the same scholarship, or you get the same kid on a smaller scholarship. Okay. Those are the two ways you make the track team better. Hmm obviously besides the coaching, but from a recruiting aspect, it was really, and, and it's these little things that, you know, basically how many points does it take to win your conference championship over the last 10 years on average? Mm-hmm. How many scholarships do you have? Do a math problem that tells you how many points per scholarship you have to have. And therefore, yeah. you know how much a half a scholarship has to score, how much a quarter scholarship has to score. If you have these numbers, you can start to make rational decisions towards building a program as opposed to just saying, I just want to get a kid to nationals. Right? So, and, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it still is a team sport that scored at our level. And so he wanted to win team championships. And, you know, he's widely known as being this great, you know, it depends. Sometimes they think he's the, the best multi-events coach of all time. Well, that's because he he's very well-rounded in his coaching approach as well, be, because he knows how to coach everything. Right. Those are the things that I've learned. Um, He's a brilliant high jump coach. He's a brilliant jumps coach, but I have no doubt. I mean, when he coaches the decathlon and the heptathlon, he doesn't send them off to the throws coach or to the sprint and hurl coach. Hmm. He coaches every single event. He can coach the shot. He can coach the discus. He can coach the javelin. He can coach the pole vault. He coaches all of it. So he's a, what's his specialty? He's a track and field coach. And when people ask me, what's your favorite event? I like the sport of track and field. And I'd like to think, although I haven't had a ton of experience in the throws, I haven't had to, um, I do have my level two throw certification, but I like to think that I'm a track and field coach and I'm a better distance coach because what do I know? What I know about the sprints and jumps mm. and I'm a better jumps, I'm a better sprints coach because of what I know about the jumps and I'm a better sprints coach because of what I know about the energy systems from the endurance side of things and being able to, 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 to take when you need to borrow from different places to find commonalities and uh, you know, Bush actually always talked about commonalities in, in an approach, but Cliff taught me that as well. Um, and I watched it in action and uh, watched his, I watched him take walk-ons and turn them into all Americans um, through just a disciplined, patient approach. It was never sexy. You wouldn't look over that's a, That's some spectacular work. It was just consistently good work over time. Keep putting in good ingredients and eventually you'll get a good result. Hmm. And uh Cliff taught me so much in, again, it was a short period of time. It was, uh, 
it was only a year and a half. Um, we won the Big 12 championship. Uh, Terrence Newman was an All-American. Uh, ended up being drafted, yeah. drafted fourth or tenth by the Cowboys. Yeah, big time. In the, played in the league forever. Yeah. But my office mate was 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 uh, Sheila. I, I lived with Sheila Burrell for a couple of months. Um, <laughs> Love her. You know, Steve was my office mate. I have an Olympian as an office mate. Uh, it was just um, being around these high level people. Uh, so it was a great, great experience. Manhattan, Kansas is a little bit different when you've kind of grown up in Boston and Baltimore and Jacksonville, kind of an East coast guy. Yeah. Um, Randy Cole was the distance coach on that staff. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome guy. Yeah. Mike Smith. Now the head coach at, at army is uh, he was the, he was the young assistant on, on, on the staff. Mm -hmm. He tells a story that he had to, he had to interview twice for a volunteer job. He had to, he needed a second interview just to get his volunteer <laughs> coaching position at K state. Wow. He actually got put on salary at one point and then Gwen Wetland graduated and Cliff wanted to hire her. So Mike went from being paid back to being a volunteer. Um, that's the hardest working guy I know in track and field. Is that right? And, uh, yeah. and now he does a great job. So made all these great connections. Um, yeah. But a, a really funny thing happened when I was there is all the stuff that I, you know, when I left Jacksonville, I'm like, well, you know, they're small and they don't have a lot of resources and I'm really not sure I was able to take care. Maybe I was even able to, to do more for them at division three than I was at this at Jacksonville university at the time. Mm. So as any young assistant might get caught up doing with the grass being greener or just making a list of all the things that you don't have. Right. Like, well, LSU has this and Florida has this and Tennessee has this and Texas has this. I don't have any of this. We can all do that. Mm -hmm. um, that was probably the mindset that I was in a little bit while I was at Kansas state. I was able to reflect back on my time at Jacksonville and realize, you know, there are a lot of great things there that I probably took for granted mm. um, that I needed to be, that, that I didn't appreciate at the time, but even being away for a short period of time, I really, I, I start, I appreciated them more. Uh, I got to what, I mean, I recruited Monique Tubbs. I coached her for the first half of her freshman year, but she won her national championship when I was gone. Mm. Right. She, um, so she, I got to watch these kids get better while I was away. Stayed in contact with my head coach. I mean, she, she, Becky Motley still lives down the street. We still, I still see her out riding bikes. We talk every now and again. She's long been, been retired. Uh, she was getting ready to retire. Mm -hmm. Hugh Durham was the athletic director. Hugh Durham, who took both Florida State and Georgia to the Final Four in basketball. He was the first coach to take two teams to the Final Four. Oh, wow. Um, he was our basketball coach and then became our athletic director. And he called me at Kansas State and said, Becky wants to retire. In two years, uh, at the, yeah, in two years, she wants you to come back and be her an assistant, the associate head coach for one year. And then when she's done, you'll be the head coach. And I knew that I wanted to come back to Jacksonville University. You, you must have made an impression because even though you're coming from the Big 12 at that point and you'd been at Jacksonville, so it's not like it was a cold uh, call in that sense. You'd been there, you'd met those people. Uh, but before that, you really, and Wheaton was, but it was part-time. You really don't have a lot of experience at this point. You know, it's not like you're 15 years into your a career at this point. You're still, I don't want to call you a rookie, but definitely weren't a rookie. But so you must have made a, an impression on them. What was it about your impression? What, 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 why did they, why did Becky think back to you? You, you left her. I don't mean that. No. <laughs> it's kind of a weird way to say that, but you know, you left her. Why did they think of you to, to come back? 
nobody's ever asked me that question. So I'm thinking about it as you're asking it now. And uh, I will say that that the string that goes through all, all of the places that I've been and most of the things that I've done is just been really passionate about it. And, yeah. and, and from my, I mean, I, I learned from my dad a work ethic. You know, my, my dad was a foreman on an assembly line. He got up before, you know, way before the sun came up and was gone and worked hard all day and came home greasy and smelly and, and took a shower and spent time with us and then went to bed early so we could get back up and go to work again. Uh, my mother gave up a job at the phone company to raise children until I was old enough to watch my two younger sisters. And then she went back to work and was working as a, as a cashier at places like Kmart and Osco Drug. I mean, they just worked. Hard and uh, so I think that's probably where it comes from is, yeah. is when I was here, I had to work all day before they would let me coach, right? I had to do all these things for my, my facility job, right. working with everybody in all, all the different areas of campus and all the other coaches and, and the administrators. Uh, and then at night, I would be in, in, in this very office sitting over in that corner with <laughs> dice that up, making phone calls. Um, and I, I think that, I hope that my work ethic produced results that, that backed up my passion and uh, you, just, you make good relationships and you know when they called I uh, I couldn't get back here fast enough and and I and my time at just like my time at Wheaton is so formative my, my time at Coppin State so formative my time in the classroom in high schools all these places had really really impactful lessons even though they were packed in short periods of time I consider them to be natural progressions um, when I came back, when I decided to come back to Jacksonville, I remember very clearly saying, all right, you, two years ago, you had a list of complaints about that place. And now you want to go back. So what's, what's changed? Mm -hmm. Well, you get a little bit more mature. You figure out what's important. Mm -hmm. um, you get to see some things when you're at the big time, like I can't, in the power of five. Mm -hmm. And maybe not all of that is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe it's a little bit more about, about producing results and not so much about relationships. Maybe not exactly always what's in the best interest of, of, of the student athlete in the moment. Um, here, I felt like maybe I'd have a little bit more of that. Uh, I really did think it was going to be the best of all worlds. And I, and I made a promise to myself that you're, you are volunteering to come back to Jacksonville University. Never again can you complete. You know exactly what you're going back to. You know exactly what you have. You know exactly what you don't have. It can never be an issue again because you're making the choice to go. And with that mindset, it's always been, we're just going to do the best that we can. And hopefully good results will allow us to get a little bit more. And I've had these great supportive, I was doing the math the other day, five presidents and seven athletic directors since, since I've been here. Um, and, uh, I felt appreciated by every single one of them. I have relationships with them all. And I mean, relationships, like there aren't many track and field coaches that can say once or twice a year, the president's receptionist, the president's assistant will call me to say he wants to meet me for a beer at someplace out at the beach. And the president <laughs> of the university and I sit down like, like you and I would, and we have beers and we talk about whatever he wants to talk about. Like that doesn't happen for track and field coaches. Yeah. That's, that's special. Um, just last week, we, uh, published a conversation with Brian Bedard, head coach at Colorado State. And, you know, he, mm -hmm. he went to school there, 
grad work, assistant coach, and now the head coach. So he's been there 30 years. And he was mentioning a lot of the same things because I'm always impressed. I think we brought up James Henry from Michigan in that conversation with uh, coaches who have been an institution for uh, a set amount of time, you know, 10, 15, 20 plus years, how many athletic directors you go through. Because, you know, uh, generalizing here, every athletic director gets the job and they have their people in mind. They have a track coach, Eva. It, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but more, more likely they have a football and basketball, but it, you know, they, they start thinking about how do I get my people in here? Uh, so it's, it's impressive that you could show the skill sets that you have. And I'm not talking about just coaching here, uh, the relationship building, the work ethic with multiple athletic directors of, as they've come through and even presidents. I mean, you're right. I don't know. I don't think we've ever had a story yet of a coach meeting with the president uh, routinely. Maybe, maybe if it's small school through the interview process, uh, but not, Hey man, let's, uh, let's go get a drink and just chat, catch up. And, and so, you know, the, the, these are the things that are instilled through me. And, and I think they're part of our university and I hope that they're part of our program. And the things that I talk about in recruiting is, is, you know, this is a place where I feel greatly appreciated and valued, Mm. right? Like my athletic director, who's younger than I am, is a great guy, is a fast riser. You know, I hope he stays forever, but it's not going to surprise me if he gets the next big job. Um, You know, the fact that he asks for my opinion, uh, that that they want me on the search committees for most positions Mm. and that, you know, when things go down, he gives me a call to talk them through. I really appreciate that. it means that I, that they value my opinion and I don't think you can put a price tag on that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, all the cliches about, you know, having not worked a day because of the student athletes I get to work with because of the, the, the other coaches and the administrators, I tell everybody who's ever asked, I think I have the greatest job in the world. Um, and, you know, maybe we're not going to get on ESPN or, or, you know, and I doubt we can win a national championship, but we're not whole bunch of conference championships and we've had a lot of fast performances and, and far jumps. And we, we produce at a very high level consistently. Um, uh, Steve Dudley ta- calls it, we, we talked about, we joke about it dollars to headaches, right? <laughs> like I may not have the, the massive salary that, that other head coaches do that have been in place for a long time, but I also don't think I have the, the, the pressure right. that goes on there. Um, they, they trust me to, to do things without micromanaging me in a way that, that uh, has proven to be Successful. acceptable, if not, if not, um, if not done well. And uh, so I just have this phenomenal job that, that uh, it was, it was the right thing to do to come back. I was able to have a vision and start working on it from being just me and a part-time assistant to now having two full-time assistant coaches and actually a <laughs> part-time men's cross country coach now. So, you know, the university has continued to reward us as we now, again, I don't know think we can, we have the same kind of resources that larger states universities do, right. but uh, if you recruit the right people, you coach them the right way, we can make some, we, we have made some noise, yes. things that I'm really proud of uh, and we do it fairly consistently. So uh, I, I couldn't be more happy where I am. What, what year is this, uh, Jackson? second it depends on how you do the math (laughs) so so i was here 98 99 i was gone 99 2000 i was back here the summer so the kind of the 2000 2001 season so 20 so this one 20 21 20 
this segment's been 19 years. 19 or 20 years, yeah. You, you said when they called, I, I can't remember your exact words. I'm going to paraphrase and say you said it was a no-brainer. Like it, it sounded like it was a pretty quick yes to come back. Did you, yeah. did you think you would still be there 19 years or was it, oh, I'll go there and parlay that into another position? If that were the motivation. So another thing that Cliff Rivelto taught me when, uh, cause I remember sitting in his office. I remember that like Ranger, Ranger junior college was going to be looking for a head coach. And uh, I said, I think I might want, want to, want to do that. And he's like, why would you want to leave Kansas state to go to Ranger? And I said, I want to be Barton. <laughs> yeah. Cause Barton was the, was, was the, was the powerhouse, right? Like that was my motivation. He goes, he said, well, you know, that that's really good motivation, but let me give you some advice. Where do you want to end up? Mm. Figure out where did you want to end up and then figure out how to get there in the fewest amount of moves. Mm. You don't want to keep bouncing around because now you look at my resume. I've been in a, a number of different places for a short period of time. Now they've all been successful. They've all been moves up to go from Kansas state back to Jacksonville university, even as a head coach can be, can be seen as, you know, while it wasn't from institution to institution, the position was, mm-hmm. um, I was never looking to be any place else. Uh, I've been, I've been really fortunate to have people come and ask. Um, my athletic directors get calls relatively often. Uh, and that's always my, my, my phrase is don't ask me, ask my athletic director. It's the one way that's allowed me to, to do well by my assistant coaches and help improve our, our situation mm-hmm. is somebody else really good calls then, they want to keep me. Maybe they can help out our program a little bit. Um, so, for, for, you know, I guess that's a little bit of a game that you sometimes play. Uh, but I, those calls don't really come anymore. Everybody, everybody knows that this is this is my spot. Um, there's really no place else that I want to be. And uh, and I I really do. We're well past that with my athletic director and, and, and things now. Where you know, they know I stay in budget. They know that if, if I if, if I'm asking for something, we we probably need it. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, I'm in just a really good place. So in 19 years, how many conference championships now? Well, there was a point in time where we won, where it went 11 years in a row winning each indoor and outdoor. Uh, <laughs> there was a cross country championship in there one year for a triple crown. Wow. Then we had a year off or a year that we lost, uh, came back to win an indoor championship. So it, it's, uh, it's 24 total, but it's been a little bit of time. So we have some really good programs that have come into our conference uh, they have, a, they have some really nice resources. Um, we're fighting the good fight. We still run really fast. We still keep producing a lot of all Americans. We haven't been able to score the number of points that we need to win a conference championship. Mm-hmm. Although we end up often winning the most events at the conference meet or having the most off conference performances with just that the, the fourth, fifth and sixth is the seventh and eighth places are, are get piled up on us. Um, so I always say I want more and more teams to come into our conference. I want the winning score in our conference championship to be as low as possible. <laughs> our cream tends to rise to the top. Right. Uh, I can always score 115 points. It's just hard to score 220 points right. without doing some really crazy things to some of our athletes, which All we right. have done in the past to win All some right. championships. Two questions that made me think of that. One is, did you think – I knew you you had the confidence that you'd be successful when you came back to to Jacksonville. Did you think twenty plus conference championships in less than twenty years successful? 
it's that's never been the thought process, mm-hmm. right? It's always been, it's always been what is the process? It's mm. recruit the best kids that you can, coach them the best way that you know how, and have the best relationships that you possibly can with them, um, which has changed over the course of time. I, I, that's one. That's the, the biggest thing that's changed is I used to be. They used to be eighteen to twenty two, and I was twenty six to thirty years old. Now they're still eighteen to twenty two, but now I'm fifty fifty one years old. The mm. uh, the way of communicating or the way that you can relate has to be a little bit different. Um, mm. But if you're doing those things well, then the results will take care of themselves. And mm. so, you know, kids get better and we run fast. And if, if, if the resources are right and we stay healthy, we'll, we were able to put together some team championships, but uh, the process of finishing fourth at the, at the team, at the conference championship and finishing first is exactly the same. It's trying to get each kid in your roster to be as good as possible. And then, those results come as a matter of it. So there's never been a, a thought of, you know, trying to tally this. It's, we're just trying to get the next one. What I hear when you say that is take care of the things that you can take care of. So you can take care of your athletes and uh, have them as prepared as possible to run as fast as possible. You can't prepare. What are the other conference teams? How are they going to do their entries? Are they going to load up and not win any events, but get six, seven, eight. And so they score 200 and that's how they win it but you can take care of JU's team in the process. And then what happens, what happens. And hopefully it's the positive that happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of strategy that goes involved at the very end when, how you enter the meet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always fun. Uh, my assistant coaches and people in my life always joke, you know, they'd, they'd text me on a, on a four o'clock on a Sunday and say, what are you doing? And then they said, Oh, let me guess you're scoring the meat. <laughs> like the number of times that I'd score the indoor championship, without George, you know, it would be hundreds of times before we actually got to the meet with all the different variables. So right, right. yeah, uh, there's a little bit of strategy that goes into it in that regard, but otherwise it really, it's, it's go recruit great. The best people you can find that fit into our culture and our university um, that, that will make coming to practice every day fun. Mm. Uh, and so that's kind of the neat part about being at, at a place like Jacksonville university is that I can turn down somebody who's pretty fast. If I don't think the transcript or if I don't think their Instagram is leads me to believe they're going to come in here and fit in with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, my job's not on the line if I'm not top five at the NCAA championships. Right. right. And there are some places where if you're not top five, then it hasn't been a successful year. That's a different level of pressure. That's the dot that goes back to the dollars to headaches right. uh, scenario. Um, and so, again, I, I think I'm in a place where I can really enjoy what I do and have relationships sometimes teach hard lessons. You know, it's not like it's always fun and games. There's a lot, there, there's button heads and there's hard conversations and there's fights, mm. you know, not physical fights, but there's yeah. arguments and, and, uh, and times that you're not happy with one another, but that's all, that can only happen if you have a good relationship. Right. I'll say, you know, we cliche sometimes and say that, you know, the coaching staff and the team is a family. Um, and I do think it's kind of cliche. However, there are fam familial dynamics and you're mm-hmm. exactly right. There are going to be arguments and that isn't the important part. It, the important part is, do you have the relationship and trust that you can have an argument or a disagreement and still come out positive on the other side? Yeah. I mean, do you care enough? Does it matter enough to, mm-hmm. to get an argument over? Yeah. Right? Wow. Yeah. Right. Like the easiest way to not let it bother you is to not care. True, but that's right. uh, I, I have a hard time with that one. Um, something made me think about on those championships. So to win any championship, your conference championship, a national championship uh, is extremely hard. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to go your way. You have to perform. Sometimes you have to um, have other teams not perform in certain events, drop some batons, et cetera. And I do 
believe if I remember correct, some of those uh, scores that you won, some of those championships were huge. Uh, so maybe you didn't have to be as good as you had to be on that day. Um, but each, each one is special. It takes special things to win. Having the conference makeup as it is now, so it's not, um, I'm gonna say as easy to win it now as it was, call it 10 years ago, this uh, long into your career, you know, you've been there, call it 20 years now, is that a new challenge or do you get frustrated with that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, our sport is, is very measurable. So it's really easy to, to create new challenges just by trying to run faster than we ever have before. You know um, everybody probably has their pandemic stories, but you know, 2019, we ran 4350 in the four by one and had everybody back for last year. Uh, who knows how fast we're going to go last year indoors, we ran 3:35, and who knows what that was going to. Now it wasn't going to get us to the indoor national championship, where they're only taking 12. But there's a good chance we were going to be top 12 in the East when the time came, be able to be at the national championship. And so we've had four by ones at the NCAA championships before, not as good as that. So we really thought we could be a final eight team, mm-hmm. and we have not had a four by four there before. Oh. And the neat part was there was only one person that was on both of those relays. So uh, wow. we would have had a pretty big group had we had it come to fruition, but you know, that's the way, that's the way things go. Um, so I don't want to think that that's the pinnacle of my career that we can never do that again. Now, now, are we going to do it this year or next? No, but we just set out to do the same thing. Let right. me, hopefully those results allow us to find some, some kids will notice us and be impressed that may not have looked at us before and we'll end up here and we can develop them and find the next thing. Um, and I'm being, I'm enjoying the distance, the middle distance and distance side more than I ever have. I mean, I've always, I like all the events. Uh, and I was kind of a, a dinosaur in that for many, many years, I coached everything <laughs> except for the throws here. I coached the hundred, the 10,000 right. heptathlon, the triple jump, the high, everything. Um, and I have a great assistant coach, Diego Vela, who came in and spent a year or two watching then he kind of took over the jumps and combined event area. And I really, you know, I, I was able to have these experiences. I want to be able to provide them for him. I would mm-hmm. love for him to be able to, to write all the training in our kind of sprint hurdle jumps group next year and let me be his assistant, but allow me to spend a little bit more time on the middle distance distance side and see if that can, if we can, you know, we've had an individual national qualifier on cross country. We've won a cross country team championship. Um, but if you look at our records, our school records, 800 is pretty good, but, but above that, a little bit soft. Mm. So I'd like to elevate our record book in that area a little bit. So, you know, that's kind of a, a late in your, in your career challenge. Uh, so as a coach, we can always in our sport, find something to challenge us that we're going to try to do a little bit different than, than last year. I love the challenge of the ego there. So you know, I talk a lot about coaches and their selflessness and no doubts, hundred percent selfless. Um, well, I shouldn't have said hundred percent actually, because, you know, to be selfless as a coach, you're giving so much to other people's kids and, you know, the kids in your team. Sometimes we are then therefore selfish with our personal lives and family. So I love that kind of um, that play of the ego there of you showed a lot of um, humility in that statement that you made about did you say his name was Diego? I want to make sure. Diego, yeah, Diego Vela. About having him coach the sprints and hurdles and you being his assistant. I mean, that is, that's humility. I mean, how many 
I'm sorry, I, I'm not, I won't name names. I wouldn't have done it. I'll just say that. Okay. A lot of humility there. However, you, you then um, kind of go to the flip side and there is ego into it. And you're not necessarily coming at it from an ego place, but there is ego of, oh, but look, our distance uh, events are maybe soft compared to, I mean, you got some amazing school records there, buddy. Uh, but it's like, oh, well, okay, let me go coach that and learn that and experience that to raise those, you know, that's an ego driven thing. So it's just interesting that that play and ego, very humili hum humility given, and then also ego driven there with that. It's just interesting to me. I've been given lots of opportunities. Again, Paul Souza didn't have to let me write all the training mm. and, and basically have the group. And he did. Uh, and Cliff, you know, it, it, I was there to assist him and really one, one of the greatest, one of the greatest, uh, you know, so I was there for a year and a half. The first six months, he's like, well, I, you know, I'm going to write the training. You're going to be with me at practice. When I'm with the jumpers, you can take the sprint group, but it's my training. And, uh, but after that first, after that first semester, one of the greatest compliments I ever received was he called me in the office and said, you got it next year. Like he gave it up. Wow. Allowed him to focus a little bit more on his group, but uh, I don't think he would have done so just to give me the experience. I think he had to have trust in me. Right. And when I look at Diego Vela, I see an amazing coach. I know that the way that I got good was Paul Souza gave me opportunities. Mm. Right. Now we ran fast, but I know the way I coached at Wheaton College, and I don't do those same things now. Like I've I've grown. Mm -hmm. um, who knows how much faster we would have run had I known what I know now then. Right. Um, <laughs> I feel really, really confident that Diego, you know, is, he is smarter than I am for sure. He is more well-read. Um, I want him to have these opportunities. Uh, they were given to me. I want to be able to give them to him. Um, similar to coaching education. Coaching education was so important to me yeah. when when Gary Winkler called and said, do you want to come and, and work with Dennis and I and start teaching the level two sprint hurdles curriculum? You know, that's another one of those moments in your life that, you know, you're not asking me, you're asking me for a reason, just a, a sense of pride. Right, and absolutely. then wanting to do that really well. Um, but knowing that Kevin and Lauren answered my phone calls <laughs> and, and, and had they not, and, and Boo Shexnader answered my emails mm -hmm. and, had they not, I don't know what I what I would have been, what, you know, how I would have become as a coach, and to be given an opportunity to to return that. That's where the that's where the joy that's where the passion it's all encompassing. It's not just what our school records are, how many championships we won. It's it's and it's just as I want to be able to impact the lives of the student athletes, I want to help coaches get better too, um, if I can. You know, I think it all goes back to that. Why did I want to get into politics? Why did I want to get mm -hmm. in teaching? Yep. I still think that coaching is teaching. I tell people that I like to think that I'm coaching with the heart of a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I enjoy teaching coaches as much as I do teaching athletes when I have something to offer. Yeah, you know, very yeah. often the people I'm working with are smarter than me and I'm trying to learn from them. But you know, in, in the rare instance that, that, uh, that I can offer something, I want to be able to do that. Yeah, knowing you as well as I do, when you talked about one of the original reasons of getting into politics was to assist and help people it, it like it the automatic connection is like oh well yeah okay well that's how you coach and that's how you teach uh with the uh, classes you know I, I got a chance to watch you speak at one of the florida high school clinics and the most impressive uh, part of to me was not what you what you taught uh and you did well there but after the class 
it, people kept coming up to ask you questions and you, there was no like, all right, look, did you not listen? It was okay. Let's talk about, you, you kept uh, talking about uh, helping these coaches. And it did make me think of you know, my personal experiences with Boo. Boo answered my emails and that was just like the most helpful thing in the world, you know, to, that he could have just shut me out easily and probably maybe should have, I guess. Uh, but he didn't, he helped. And I know he was doing that with a lot of other rookie beginner coaches out there. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what Boo has done for a generation yes. of coaches um, and people that I consider to be real close friends who have gone to, gone to, you know, to dwarf the accomplishments that I've had in the sport, but uh, it, it's all because of, of our mentors willingness to share. And so, uh, you know, I'd much prefer answering emails or phone calls from, from people who have read something I wrote or heard me talk and want to ask questions than I, than I do want to be filling out compliance paperwork or expense <laughs> reports and those kind of things. Other than being on the track with the athletes, talking to coaches is, yes. uh, is a great part of the job. Agreed. All right, enough of the mushiness and the giving back. So because Ron is a dear friend of mine and because I love social media, I'm also very thankful I didn't coach during the social media era. However, I do love social media. I decided to try something a little new with today's podcast. So I asked uh, my Twitter uh, network out there, what are some questions, not training related? Everybody, everybody wanted to do training related questions with you because you're just so genius about that stuff. Uh, but I said, no training. This is not a podcast about training. You can go to other aspects for that. So I've got a couple of questions to, uh, to ask you from Twitter. All right, Ron, is that, is that okay with you? I'm fire away. I said, I didn't actually ask your permission at all. <laughs> I'm really good at just asking for permission or uh, forgiveness, not permission. So a uh, friend of ours, I think we all know every one of these guys and gals here, but uh, we're going to start out with Rhonda Riley. Uh, she's doing a great job up there at Duke University. She asked, how many days a week do you go to the beach? That, that was a real, I love, I love that question because again, we talked about where you live is amazing. So how often do you get to go to the beach now? All right. So um, we try to do our long run Saturday mornings at the beach. Um, whether we're running on the roads with all the beautiful cottages or whether the tide is low enough that we can get on the beach and go up in the Hannah park. So uh, very often it's at least one day a week, regardless of the time of year. Um, during the, during the school year and academic season, uh, if there's no recruit on campus on a Sunday, I like to go out and try to run on Sundays up there and then kind of hang out at the beach if I can. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the, the upsides of being at a, at a university that doesn't have the massive recruiting budget is that in the summertime, <laughs> I'm not going to be on the road doing 9 million home visits right. and being at every AAU district meet watching the eight and nine-year-olds. Um, very often I'm on the phone with those guys, you know, maybe with a, with an adult beverage in hand in a koozie at the beach saying, if you find one that you can't have, get their phone number and send it to me. And that's worked out many, many times. Um, so in the, but in the summer, I will get there as often as I can. And, uh, you know, people always say, well, where do you want to go on vacation? I said, I, I live in vacation. You live in vacation. Yes. Like for me, it's the 15 minute drive. I, I guess, I guess if I had a, a perfect vacation, I would, rent a place for a couple of weeks, 15 miles away. So I wouldn't have to drive the 15 miles back and forth over the bridge. I could just be there because I know where all the restaurants and everything, everything is. I know where my, my spot to sit is. And well, that's a great, so I get some good summer reading done. I can answer some good text messages and, and, and I can do some good recruiting from, from the chair, but uh, yeah, there are worse places to spend your life than in a beach community. 
So you mentioned restaurants, and that's a great segue to our next question. Uh, Lane Fletcher asks, what is your favorite post-meal restaurant or post-restaurant meal? This one's not sexy at all. Um, <laughs> I, I love a public sub, right? Really? So, so they're, they're kind of famous for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's really neat is, uh, so Jose Fernandez was, was one of my first distance assistant coaches. And he's a longtime teacher in Florida. And, um, you know, if, if I'm going to meet at FSU or meet at, at Florida, very often he'll show up with a public sub for me, like at the meet, because he just knows. Um, <laughs> or Bambi Carson, now Bambi Brundage, who was my throws coach and now is an administrator on, at the, on the university side. And her husband is our, is our throws coach. Uh, if we're at a UNF meet and she's there watching, you know, she'll go out and she'll, she'll show up with a she knows exactly what I want. Sausalito turkey, chipotle gouda cheese uh, on, on a wheat roll. Um, so that's not sexy. It's not a, it's not a fancy restaurant, or, or but uh, there's nothing like a public sub, either right after the meat if you haven't gotten one, or someone brings one to the meat for you. Nice. Well, I love it because uh, the great follow-up question, Tyler Rafke asked, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? If you were to ask my best friend, Danny Toon from Sharon, Massachusetts, he would say vanilla, just like your personality. Um, but that's not the case. Uh, Good. <laughs> in, in Sharon, there is a there is a uh, Crescent Ridge Dairy where hmm. I actually worked when I was in high school for one summer. Um, so they make that. You know, the cows are right out back. They make it right on on the spot. Oh wow! Um, and and they have black raspberry ice cream, which I which my dad, because I really I have a very bland palate. Um, I don't experiment a lot. Uh, and my dad had me try black raspberry ice cream when I was a kid, and it is absolutely my favorite. Not to be confused with black raspberry chip, because putting chocolate chips in it ruins everything for me. Oh, you're black pure. raspberry ice cream from Crescent Ridge Dairy in Sharon, Massachusetts, and Mark Mangiacotti and his wife Carrie from Brockton, two towns over. And when they were coaching at Wheaton, and even now that they they're, they're that he's at Harvard and they're in Cambridge, will very often drive to Sharon just to get ice cream at Crescent Ridge Dairy. How far um, is that from? let's say Harvard? Probably, well, you know, mile, miles, not all that far, but it's got to be 40 minute drive at least. All um, right. Next time I'm in, up in that area, which I will be, because I'm working on the uh, new balance. But you have to do the double. So Crescent Ridge is in Sharon, okay. but about two miles up the road and across the street in a town called Stoughton is Town Spa Pizza. Oh. And Town Spa Pizza is where every half day in high school, when, you, when you're old enough to have a car, on half day, we're meeting at Town Spa. And we'd all be, you know, would overrun the place. The waitress probably hated us, um, <laughs> but we will still go back and have a town spot pizza and then go back and have some Crescent Ridge afterwards. Dude, I'm in. Next time I'm heading up there, we're going to do it. Uh, well, and then of course, so the last question is from a dear friend of both of ours. And you mentioned Mark Mangiacotti and his wife, who are great friends. And, uh, you know, I owe a lot to Mark. Mark was one of the first people to take a chance on this crazy idea to have a podcast and was one of our early top first five guests we ever had. Uh, here on the on the podcast. Well, another one of those top five, or first five, I should say, people was Yoda himself, Kaba Tolbert. So because Kaba, he sees things differently. He didn't know these other questions. And yet his question is, how does Ron Grigg maintain his boyish figure? <laughs> yeah, he's a funny guy. Well, let me digress first to tell you how great Kaba is. Uh, Kaba was a division... Th Mark Mangiacotti, a Division Three athlete in New England. Todd Lane, a Division Three athlete. Um, Jim Van Ottigan, a Division Three athlete. 
and Cabo ran a Colby. I was at UMass Dartmouth. So a lot of division three athletes doing great things, coaching at the division one level. Um, yes. I'm sure there are many more that I've missed. Um, but K- I remember when I was coaching at Wheaton, there was a book on hurdles written by Cabo Tolbert. And it was really <laughs> just like a compilation of articles. And I remember buying it. And then I saw him somewhere or we met somewhere, but he and I sat at a level three in Chicago and we sat in an Uno's pizza in the airport for maybe three hours and introduced ourselves to one another and started talking. And uh, I I talked to Cable once a week. I talked to Mark once a week. Um, I talked to Todd once every two weeks. I mean, you know, uh, so Cable is, Cable is the keeper of the scrolls. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> when Cable was coaching in, in the Midwest and he came to a meet at Kansas State, he walked into my office with a hockey bag. You know how big the hockey bags are? Yeah. Though the hockey bag was full of those big, big binders. It was a he had a Dan Path binder. Yeah. He had a Bushnader binder. He had, and uh he's like, Can I get your training? I'm like, why? And he opens up a, he had he didn't have a binder, but he had a Ron Grigg tab. It was one of, again another one of those moments. He wanted to get training and, and things to stick in his. So he's the keeper wow. of the scrolls. He also wanted to go. He wanted to know where the library was because he was going to the library to like photocopy books. Because um, he is brilliant and uh, and and a dear dear friend. Yes. Um, and so to answer his his question, I thought you were trying to get out of it. I was I was going to steer you back in here. Uh, you know those guys. Cabe has a wife and children. He's got a lot of responsibility. Um, I don't, right? Like my life has been this program. Uh, I have, um, I, my responsibilities are a little bit less. So in my free time, I will still work out. And, uh, during the pandemic, I was lucky enough to have bought a Peloton like the end of February. Oh, and I never thought I'd be like a workout equipment guy. But people kept saying it. And Coach Carson, Bambi Carson, Bambi, Bambi, Bambi is like an evangelist for Peloton. Yes. And so I finally got one. And man, I've been I've ridden as much as 1,100 miles in a month. I a, a low month now is about 500 miles in a month. I ride basically every day. Wow. Power zone training is unbelievable. It, it is. I actually can think about things I would take from this training and apply it to distance running. Huh. Um, and so I, I have. I've been lifting and, you know, again, don't come to the office, they tell us. So I make my recruiting calls from home. I come for practice and I go back home. So when class is out, when school is out this summer, I could get up and run, come home and lift. And then in the afternoon, get on the bike. Hmm. I was working out three times a day and I got wow. in, in, that's how I ran 20 minutes for 5k, but, uh, I lost 15 pounds and, uh, and I'm also kind of vain. So that, that's for, for all of those reasons, uh, I still like to look in the mirror every now and again. The vain guy who goes to Publix for subs, man. I tell you what, you don't get better than that. That's my splurge. That's why I have to, you know, do the 45 minute power zone class. I love it, man. Ron, when we, uh, before we hit, hit the record button, you asked, uh, so how, how long does this go for? And I said, you know, we go until it goes. We've done over two hours, my friend. Yeah, well, I'm not sure anybody's going to listen to it, but, uh, <laughs> but but you and I had a great time. That's and I, all and that I'm matters. really, really thankful being, for being able to uh, pay homage to my mentors and the yes. people who are important in my life, uh, the people who have hired me, um, people who coached me, uh, and my friends. Um, 
it's what allows me to have the best job in the world is, you know, knowing guys like you. Well, I don't know about that last part, but, uh, you know, when you start talking about Cliff and Kava and Mark and uh, Paul Souza, I mean, just so many amazing people. Uh, but honestly, you know, for me, it's about uplifting and honoring coaches. And uh, it's special when I get to do someone who I had have no clue, I've never met them before. And it's special when I get to talk with a guy that I've known for 20 years and admired for 20 years and uh, humble that you would say that, you know, guys like Bap and I pushed you to, to work harder. And because and, I don't know that that's possible. You are a hard worker. Uh, uh, so it's just it's just awesome, man. I just so appreciate of you being here today and uh, sharing your journey and uh, sharing your story with with all the listeners. Well, uh, I do have one idea for you. The next time we have a convention in person, uh-huh. you need to you need to set up like five or six headphones and microphones, and uh, you know a bunch of us can all sit down together and make fun of each other, and we can just keep when people start walking by, we can you can just grab them and get them on the mic. It'll be like a radio row at the Super Bowl. I think that is a great idea. And I am looking forward to actually being an in-person coaches convention. I hate that we're missing it uh, this month in December because that is one of the most special times I look forward to because I get you guys, you're not stressed out. You're not at a track meet. It's right before indoor season and outdoor season. So everybody's kind of cool, calm and collect. We're in Orlando and San Antonio. Uh, it, It is one of the best times to be we let down our hair a little bit. Well, you know, if you're watching on YouTube, there's not much hair. Uh, I can't make fun of him. It's not like I got anything to let down here either. But uh, I'm just so thankful, man. I appreciate you, your time uh, today. Uh, it means a lot to me. It's the most valuable thing you can give me. So I really do appreciate it, Ron. Mike, thanks for all you do for the sport. Absolutely, man. So that's a wrap, folks, man. I hope, uh, I really hope you enjoyed this. I just want to thank our guests for being on the show today. I uh, really appreciate Ron's authenticity and openness to share with us. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing to the show. Even more importantly, if you found value in this conversation, maybe others in your network would too. Hit that share button and let Facebook, Twitter, and the rest of the gang know all about it. See you next week when we once again connect you with another awesome track coach. Have a great day, guys.